It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Dorian. The wind comes, spinning like a cosmic top, spinning, spinning, its arms ripping, Ripping, ripping. Bahamas Islands lay in the Caribbean Sea, trembling in manic terror. But Dorian does not leave. It sits and spins, spins and sits, pulling trees from the swimming earth, then bricks from homes. It's hurricane season, and Dorian doesn't want to leave. The hurricane is hungry, and soon, when it finally leaves the island, it will spin its way over warm seawater, recharge itself, and seek a new meal over Florida, the Peninsula State. It doesn't matter what politicians say. Their lies will not deter Dorian's spinning arms. The wind comes, fueled by industry and climate change, bringing destruction and death from imprisoned nations. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Evidence of the destruction caused by Hurricane Dorian, one of the most powerful Atlantic storms ever recorded, is beginning to emerge from the Bahamas. There's widespread damage to buildings on Great Abaco Island and Grand Bahama. The hurricane has been downgraded to a Category 3, but high winds and rain are continuing. One resident, Deshaun Smith, fled his own house on Grand Bahama when it was flooded, but when he heard there were other people still stranded, he ventured out into the storm on his jet ski to try and help. I started doing rescues earlier this morning. It's like going in the open ocean right now to rescue people. The waves are very big. 
the visibility is pretty much zero. We got pregnant women, little children, women, um, about 40 people. You know, we had people that were locked in their house because water level was so high, they, they couldn't... Um, they couldn't get the door open, so we literally had to break them out through the window. Um, so a lot of people were very happy. Janelle Longley spoke to the BBC from Freeport on Grand Bahama at the headquarters of the rescue effort. Even though they seem to always get the brunt of these storms, this is just on another level. Areas that were never expected to flood have flooded. The office of the prime minister where the NEMA headquarters is has flooded on the first floor. We're on the second floor and just trying to watch the water to make sure it doesn't come up again. The hurricane is expected to move very slowly towards the U.S. coast, where preparations have been underway for several days. Our correspondent, Gary O'Donoghue, is in Florida. I asked him if help was able to reach those communities worst affected. It's taking a lot of time, and the reason for that is the storm hasn't been moving, and so it's been non impossible for those people to get to places like Abaco and also now to to Grand Bahama uh, to do any kind of rescue because the storm has effectively sat on top of the, that northwestern part of the island group for almost two days, not far off two days. And yes, it's now been downgraded to a Category 3, but that still means uh, winds of 120 miles an hour and plus, and there's still rain falling. So it's still an incredibly difficult situation there. We do know that there's a... Uh, apart from anything, the U.S. Coast Guard has been involved in, in taking some people from Abaco uh, to New Providence Island, to Nassau, the capital of the Bahamas, uh, helped some evacua- evacuations there. And there's also a Royal Navy auxiliary boat in the area, which is, uh, which is starting to, to use its helicopter to fly some, some reconnaissance missions. But it's going to be a long, slow process. What, what we've just heard from the Hurricane Centre is that Having uh, been stationary for that period of time, Dorian is now starting to move ever so slowly, about a mile an hour northwest off of that north northwestern part of the islands towards the, the eastern seaboard of the United States, and it's still about 100 miles off the coast of Florida. And moving, as you say, very slowly, the storm's off the coast of Florida now, but the effects, are they already being felt, and, and how soon or where is it expected to make landfall, or will it uh, just remain offshore? Well, we don't think it'll, it'll make landfall. We're expecting the storm, as things stand, to sort of travel north parallel to the coast. I mean, I'm at a place called Daytona Beach, where a lot of people have heard of because of the famous speedway uh, racing that's done here. And we're sort of, you know, I suppose we're mid, just north of mid-Florida here, up on the east coast. Uh, and the winds here are, are, are gusting, and the rain has just started to fall here, so we're going to get some some water. Uh, but it is largely going to stay off the coast. We understand it at the moment. That it doesn't mean there's not going to be problems like storm surge uh, and, uh, and high water in these coastal communities. Gary O'Donoghue in Daytona Beach, Florida. And subtle, but in even many ways more profoundly devastating, is the lasting damage to the survivors' will to rebuild and remain in the area. The destruction of the spirit of the people of southern Louisiana and Mississippi may end up being the most tragic loss of all. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Late summer is usually a drowsy time in the book world, but a recently published debut memoir called The Yellow House has become one of the most talked about books of the 2019 publishing season. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a review. When Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans on August 29, 2005, writer Sarah M. Broom was living in New York City, far away from her hometown and her family. 
In her extraordinary debut, a memoir called The Yellow House, Broom quotes from interviews with her mother and some of her 11 siblings to piece together the story of what happened when the water roared into their neighborhood of New Orleans East and rose up, up, up until it edged the tops of the houses. Their fragmented recollections, immediate, raw, sometimes profane, and even funny, add to the growing archive of testimonies about the harrowing of New Orleans. After the water receded, there were two belated casualties. Broom's grandmother, Amelia, fell ill during the exodus and died a month later. The other casualty was the Yellow House itself, a much-tinkered-with camelback shotgun house where Broom and almost all her siblings grew up. Here's a snippet from Broom's description of the post-Katrina visit she and her family members paid to that house. The house looked as though a force, furious and mighty, crouching underneath, had lifted it from its foundation and thrown it slightly left. Once having done that, it had gone inside to my sister Lynette's and my lavender-walled bedroom and extended both arms to press outward until the walls expanded, buckled, and then folded back on themselves. The house had split in two. The original structure separated from the later addition that my father built. We did not enter, even though the house we knew beckoned. We stayed outside, looking through the one big crack. Broom's memoir itself is a force that cracks open that little yellow house and exposes the decades of life lived within, the meals, the fights over the two bathrooms, the dreams, the indestructible flying cockroaches, the parties and weddings and out-of-the-blue tragedies. One of the most compelling presences in this book is Broom's mother, Ivory May, who bought the Yellow House in 1961 with insurance money after the death of her first husband. A 19-year-old widow with two children and pregnant with a third, Ivory May quickly remarried. Her second husband, Simon Broom, had a steady job in maintenance at the nearby NASA plant. But Simon died six months after Sarah was born. That's when something began to gather strength, fester, and spread throughout the house. As the youngest child, the babyest in this large family, Broom was too young to witness what she calls the original shifty settling in of shame, but she lived with its consequences. After her father's death, the house, which was always in disrepair, grew more dilapidated and stayed that way. Electricity would erratically cut off, rooms were framed, but walls were never inserted, and repairs relied heavily on masking tape. The children caught on quick that no one but family should be invited inside. Along with everything else it illuminates, the Yellow House offers a searing evocation of the long-term toxic consequences of shame. 
Outside the tight confines of Broom's house, her neighborhood of New Orleans East, promoted in the booming post-war era as a middle-class suburban section of the city, was, by the 1980s, overrun with salvage yards, drugs, and prostitution. Investors had pulled out. This was now a majority black and poor section of the city, ominously hemmed in by water and environmental problems known to city planners went unattended. Broom eventually left for the wider world, got a graduate degree in journalism, and honed the research and writing skills necessary to craft this sweeping memoir that situates her family's personal story within a larger narrative about race, class, and the unlevel playing field in America. Broom exposes how the ground the Yellow House was built on was pockmarked with sinkholes, geographic and economic, long before Katrina came along and blew the place off its foundation. In the summer of 2006, the city of New Orleans finished the job by demolishing the Yellow House. Broom's mother was sent one letter warning her of the destruction— but because that letter was delivered to the doomed house itself, and Ivory May was necessarily living elsewhere, she only learned after the fact that her house was gone. Out of the materials of memory and archival history, Sarah Broom's memoir solidly reconstructs what the forces of nature and institutionalized racism succeeded in knocking down. Maureen Corrigan teaches literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. You love that chicken from Popeyes. In 1914, a black farmer named Benjamin Carr is quoted saying, The farmer is the only free man we have in our race. The quote is one of the historical inspirations that drove scholar Monica White to write about the role of farm cooperatives in the black freedom struggle. The book, Freedom Farmers, flips the script on black agriculture from a story rooted only in slavery and oppression to one that details acts of resilience and resistance for black Americans. Monica White is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research focuses on sustainable community food systems with marginalized communities. Monica, welcome to the State of Things. Thank you so much for having me. Talk about why you chose to write this book and what inspired it. Yes, I uh, had an opportunity to move back to Detroit to um, take care of my parents and needed a, a research topic uh, as I was teaching at uh, Research One Institution and really wanted to capture the voices of African-Americans that were returning to our agricultural roots to provide nutrient-rich food sources for folks in Detroit during the economic downturn of the automobile uh, restructure. And so wanting to be involved in the food justice movement, uh, but also wanting to understand this uh, the, the 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 precursors to this current movement. Um, I felt it necessary to really sort of not just talk about what was happening in terms of um, urban ag today, but what are the trajectories and how can we complicate the story of folks who use food as a strategy of uh, freedom? Well, I want to take you back to that and those historical roots, but but again, talk more about uh, farming in Detroit because that sure. strikes the ear as not quite right. So talk about the, the <laughs> resilience and the, uh, the rise of that. Yeah, tell us more. 
Sure. So um, we saw that there was uh, in a city that was built to um, provide resources for almost two million. The economic downturn meant that there were fewer than about six hundred and fifty five thousand um, folks uh, after the um, the restructuring of uh, the automobile industry and populations left. Um, even before then, there's a history of agriculture in Detroit. Uh, I would even argue that wherever there have been people, people have grown food in cities. Uh, and it is uh, it seems like it's a new idea, but it really isn't a new idea. Folks have always grown food in, in cities. And Detroit, given um, the, the, the fact that it spread, uh, it spread out instead of grew up, uh, meant that the um, economic downturn created access to available land and people didn't have access to resources with regard to um, grocery stores and what have you and started taking matters into their own hands and utilizing these vacant lots uh, to produce food, but also uh, not just food for themselves, but food for community. And so you would see community growing spaces that would capture or would have music. It would have beautiful artwork. They would have programs and um, uh, nutrient uh, how, cooking classes and, and how to provide um, nutrient rich food sources for folks in the community. And so as you drive through Detroit, um, what used to be uh, abandoned house lots, uh, now you see vibrant with uh, food production and the kinds of conversations that take place in a space using food as its core. And as you say, you, this is a response to the 2008 downturn. But uh, as you said, this is not anything new. Tell us about the three wise men and a sister. <laughs> so um, I talk about the work of George Washington Carver, Booker T. Washington, and Du Bois as the three wise men. And about 100 years ago, they told us the role and importance of agriculture for building um, uh, black communities. Um, and I say that they're the three wise men, and the sister who showed them how to do it is Fannie Lou Hamer. And her work really sort of, uh, in addition to looking at models and what food allows us to do, Mrs. Hamer created Freedom Farm Agricultural Cooperative, about 680 acres. They had a mobile food market. Um, uh, they had um, commercial kitchens. They had a community growing space. Um, they provided all kinds of educational retraining programs for folks who were um, fired from their jobs for um, uh, registering to vote. And so what you see happening is um, that as uh, the uh, agricultural industry was sort of really changing, black labor uh, was no longer needed. And so um, in addition to that, um, our voting meant we would not only be uh, fired from our jobs, but evicted from the places that we worked, usually on um, on the land that was owned by the, the, the person who, um, anyway, the landowner. Right. And so the complicated part of that is to sort of see how people were taking control of, and demonstrating their own agency and resilience by pulling their resources together and establishing cooperatives and, and collectives. And this is a complicated story because two of those wise men, you talk about George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington, are, con- are seen as sort of very conservative in this movement. Uh, some call them accommodationist back then, and that was not a kind word often in the mouths of yeah. those who used it. But you're saying, now, this is a much more radical concept than it appears to be, and certainly today. Oh, yes, I would agree. I would agree. I think that um, to dismiss Booker T. Washington's ideas as only being accommodationist is to really miss the nuance of who he was and what he was able to do. I would argue that he, and, and I, you know, I need to really go out and sort of prove this, but I think that he gave different messages for different audiences and really what he did in terms of, you know, creating this model of Tuskegee University that still exists. The students knew how to do everything. They knew how to make shoes. They built bricks. They built the school. They grew the food and all the things that were necessary for survival really took place there at Tuskegee. And so I think that um, in 
overlooking all that he did for farmers is really to miss an opportunity to examine the role and the importance and often the significance of, of, of food production. Well, the other way this gets complicated is because, and, and as we said, uh, you know, in the introduction, you're flipping the script here because there yes. is an association of farming and agricultural life with slavery and the oppression of rural life, particularly in the South. Mm-hmm. And who wouldn't want to get away from that? Mm-hmm. So tell us more about how this how this flips the script and reclaims uh, farming as a, as a source of freedom and resistance. Sure. So I think that when you think of black agriculture or black farmers, we often talk and think about slavery, tenant farming, and sharecropping. But I think that to talk to and to listen to folks like your opening quote or Reverend Paris, who says, you can free yourself when you can feed yourself, within that becomes this narrative of how do we using the earth as a, you know, as, as, a, as an ally, use the earth to grow food. What does food allow us to do? It allows us to provide for ourselves, but also provide for community. And then even today in Detroit, Baba Malik Yakini talks about food as a strategy. But if we can control our food source, can we also think about community education? Can we also think about other ways that we can um, demand some, make some claims in terms of what we should have access to and also demonstrate our own agency and resilience by showing what that looks like? So I think that these Food um, conversations have always been not just about providing for ourselves, but providing collectively. And then once we are able to feed ourselves, then what are the other kinds of things that we're able to do? I'm talking to Monica White from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her book is Freedom Farmers. It's available now. She's going to be speaking at the Center for Environmental Farming Systems Farm to Fork Annual Sustainable Agriculture Lecture. That's Thursday in Chapel Hill. The event is ticketed. We have information at our website, stateofthings.org. And again, you talked about communities being together. You've said that several times. You looked at the role of cooperatives throughout the the history of farming and, of course, American history. And, Mm -hmm. And black cooperatives, many of the ones that you profile in your book, were actually formed in response to very specific kinds of discrimination. So give us some examples. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, um, we definitely see this disconnect between um, uh, or, or what happens when folks speak out for, you know, or, or even register to vote. Right. You're fired and you're evicted. And so it is within this backdrop that there had already been some organizing around civil rights conversations, but also the need for um, a voice to speak about the lack of access to nutrient rich food. And so knowing that folks were growing various like tobacco or cotton or soybeans, and these were cash crops. But if we can grow those kinds of crops, can we also grow the kinds of food uh, food crops um, that can be used for our communities, but also use that in terms of um, shared um, various food hubs and other kinds of strategies that they were able to to engage and to enact, um, especially during the late 1960s. And I think, uh, you know, even in the book, sort of mapping out how much folks were, you know, working toward um, 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 improved food systems, I think is, is something that is often overlooked. Yeah, and those systems include the included the inputs. So when That's so right. when white uh, retailers and wholesale Sailors refused right. to sell oil to black farmers who, who registered to vote. Right. Uh, those many of those black farmers formed a cooperative and then provided their own. So it wasn't all, only agriculture; it was all of That's the inputs, right. right? That's right. 
Well, and I, I think it's also. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, please do. I want you to. to it, 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 I think it's also important to sort of recognize that it was that they recognized individually there was a vulnerability, right? Um, uh, Dara Cooper talks about that sort of vulnerability of land ownership as an individual versus the collective power. And so throughout history, we see food as a strategy of resistance and resilience, especially for black, you know, for the African American community. But we also can think about the ways that um, pulling our resources together to buy seeds to to share um, labor to share tools and instruments. Every farmer doesn't need a tractor. If we have a nicer tractor that more of us can sort of share and access, there's where our power is. But it's not just in in the growth. It also teaches us something about politics, teaches us something about economics, and it teaches something about the social climate and what we need to do in order to improve uh, improve our living conditions, especially in rural areas, but I would also argue in urban areas. Well, yeah, I mean, there's something marvelously subversive about the entire model because (laughs) when you're talking about cooperatives, again, and flipping this script. You're talking about people who are growing food for nutrition, which is historically what humans have done, not commodities, which is historically what capitalism does. So you're flipping that script. We grow this food to eat, not not as a commodity. We own the land not as a form of dominance, right? (laughs) Playing Mm. monopoly to get the monopoly Mm -hmm. so that we can then force other people. We're actually cooperating here and we're sharing the land and there are going to be fights. There are going to be arguments. So it is interesting in in the many ways that cooperatives, uh, land cooperatives and farm cooperatives do um, turn the story on its head. Oh, beautifully said. I, I like how you put that. Okay, you can use that. <laughs> Take that anytime. Tell me, tell me, but why, right now, what are some of the structural barriers to access for, for good food uh, in those communities that have not had access? Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, people uh, often use uh, a frame food desert. And, and I was speaking with your producer as to why that is a distasteful f- phrase. And, and part of the reason is because we produce enough food to eat. For everyone to be fed. But the ways that we distribute it, the ways we process it, the ways we get rid of a third of the food we produce is is wasted even before it reaches anyone's table. Um, The ways that we distribute food, the system, the supply chain is is fractured. And even in Detroit, we call food uh, Detroit food insecure. But there's a lot of food that is um, shipped into Detroit and goes out through the Eastern Market, the wholesale area. So we needed a different way to sort of talk about the disconnect between um, um, retail retailers, uh, distributors, and what have you. And I think that what the food justice movement is asking for, or demanding, shall I say, is that there be a real reconsideration of how, um, of, of a, um, a regenerative model instead of an extractive model. So how can we be in control of food production, food distribution, food preparation, and make sure that we know where the seeds come from and how that food is grown, making sure that it's nutritious for not just myself, but my community. And then also how can we then build other kinds of entities and establishments to support that food system, which also supports that community development. So we're talking about healthy whole communities and not just the individual or a family. Given the fact that I would, I would only push back slightly because you said that system is is fractured and so it doesn't get there. It doesn't get there and it should. But one could argue that it is precisely designed to do just that's that. That's right. That it that's is precisely right. designed that's to right. do that. That's if right. that's true and that design is working so well for so few people, but it works very well and those are the people in mm-hmm. control, Right. Are these alternate systems you're talking about, uh, are they something that we do in tandem with the governing system right now, or does something have to be overthrown? Will there be too much resistance from the current way that we produce and consume and supply food to to your model to, to actually survive in a, in a sensible or sustainable way? 
What I will say is that there are successes of the food justice movement. When you go into your grocery store, you don't you can't go into the produce section and not see labeling of organic or sustainably grown local foods and that. I think that that is a marker of success for the food justice movement broadly defined, right? And so I think that it, it, it just it, it not in, in addition to seeing it in grocery stores, I think that there are movements of folks that are creating alternate systems. So I do think that we have a requirement. I mean, at the moment, we go to grocery stores. We do, you know, con, you know, contribute to uh, GDP in, in various kinds of ways, uh, you know, in terms of our uh, supplies. But I also think that there's a growing sense that we need to be in control of the food that we consume and the benefits of that food. And so there are, at the same time, um, uh, you know, just the, the structure of uh, food pre- uh, preparation uh, and food distribution in ways that are outside of, uh, of government and even market, um, you know, mass market uh, basis. What are some of the success stories that you've seen? Wow. So I would say that Mr. Burkett, um, who is a um, third generation farmer from Petal, Mississippi, talks about the, the importance of a cooperative. He's in Indian Springs, um, uh, Mississippi. Uh, and and so he, he talks about it had it not been for the cooperative. He's not sure he would have been able to keep the land in his family since the 1800s. And I hold that example clear, uh, very close to me because I think that farmers, small family farmers in this current moment, there is a crisis. There should be an alarm that goes off um, that we really are doing things in the wrong direction when the state of Wisconsin now rates highest in the farm foreclosure crisis mm-hmm. and dairy farmers are closing. So if white farmers are, are getting it, then you know that black farmers, uh, especially those in the South, are also suffering. And so I think that this is an important moment for us to hold dear small family farmers, many of whom have been working very hard toiling to make sure we have access to food. In some cases, our food insecure themselves. And so I think that this is a, is a current moment for us to all be asking questions, who grows our food and who benefits from the sale? How much of this is based in public policy at the national and at the state level and what what policies could change to lower the barriers? I absolutely think that um, a lot of the policies, particularly USDA, really privilege the larger farmers, the larger voices, and those who hold a large, uh, a lot of, of land mass. Also recognizing that they're not the ones that are, for the most part, growing food. Uh, it's the small family farmer who grows a lot of our food. So I think that the, the policy position has to be very clarified uh, to make sure that we provide resources to those uh, who are struggling to hold on to the land and to grow food. Monica White, an associate professor of environmental Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her new book is called Freedom Farmers. It's available now. She's going to be speaking at the Center for Environmental Farm Systems. It's a farm-to-fork annual sustainable agriculture lecture. Thursday in Chapel Hill, it's a ticketed event, but we do have all the information at our website, stateofthings.org. Monica White, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Cows, Gusty Renegade. Our 10-year anniversary counter-racist yoga retreat in Florida, December 28th to January 1. We will have yoga, plant-based meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and counter-racist workshops, food workshops uh, as well. No Popeye's chicken at the retreat. Uh, The importance, emphasizing the importance of what you eat. Can a junk food diet cause someone to go blind? Researchers at the University of Bristol in England say that's what seems to have happened to one teenager. They've published a case study in the medical journal Annals of Internal Medicine. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. 
Several years back, a 14-year-old boy went to the doctor complaining that he was tired. At the time, doctors said he appeared healthy. He was not overweight and took no medications, but his diet was bad, really bad. According to the report, he ate mostly white bread, chips, and bits of processed meat. The fact is that the boy was eating so much junk food. That's researcher Alan Taylor of Tufts University. He was not involved in the case study, but he agreed to review the findings for us. He says it is very unusual for a teen to develop the condition that this teen did. It's called optic neuropathy. Optic neuropathy is an inflammation of the optic nerve that carries information from your eyes to your brain. Usually, it's a temporary condition, but in the reported case study, the teenager's vision loss was permanent. So Taylor says he'd like to know more. Actually, the diagnosis is quite puzzling to me. Perhaps there were other issues with this teenager. But Taylor says the case is an opportunity to point out to people that poor diet can lead to vision problems. Consuming a diet rich in such poor quality carbohydrates can, in fact, compromise vision. Now, this usually does not happen during the teenage years. It's much more common later in life. Taylor and his collaborators studied about 20,000 people to see how their diets influenced the risk of age-related macular degeneration, which tends to occur after age 60. We found that the more you eat the junk food diet, the greater your risk for macular degeneration is. And the, the more you eat the healthy diet, the less you have a risk for macular degeneration. At a time when there are conflicting ideas about what makes a healthy diet, Taylor explains in the study, people who ate plenty of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, tomatoes and seafood had a lower risk, but people who consumed a lot of red and processed meat, fried food and refined carbohydrates had a higher risk. So Taylor's advice? Be sure that you feed yourself and your loved ones a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables. And dial back on the white bread and those chips. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. This time I'm walking to New Orleans. School has kicked off for many students around the country, including in New Orleans. And for the first time, the district is entirely made up of charter schools. The move away from traditional public schools and towards charters started in 2005, when the state took over after Hurricane Katrina. Jess Clark of member station WWNO has been taking a look at the consequences. On a clear August morning, fourth grader Alan Corn Lafarge hops in the back seat of his father's car. He's wearing his school uniform, neatly ironed khakis and a bright blue polo shirt. It's embroidered with the logo of his new charter school, Idea Oscar Dunn. How are you feeling this morning? Good. Good. Are you excited to go to school? Alan Corn says he likes his new school, but won't say more. He's a quiet kid. His father, Alex Lafarge, says even he's had trouble getting his son to talk about his new school. He was anxious, and I think his third week there now, he's starting to open up. The reason Alan Korn is going to a new charter school is because the district closed his old one, Meddard H. Nelson Charter School, and Lafarge is very upset about the closure. Orleans Parish School Board surely has not allowed me the choice to let him stay with family, to let him stay in the neighborhood, to let him stay with an enriched environment that he has pulled from since pre-K. But district officials have a different opinion about the environment at Nelson. Amanda Aiken is senior chief of NOLA Public Schools. She says Nelson's performance was unacceptable, noting that just 10 percent of students tested at grade level in recent years. 
we have to hold the line somewhere. That is the job that we have is to make those tough decisions, but to take in all of the data we have and say, this school is not preparing kids to be successful. What is our next step here? In New Orleans, that next step is often closure or handing the school to another charter group. This is a key piece of the strategy. Each spring, a handful of schools that fail to meet the mark close or change hands, and each fall, a new group of schools opens. According to Tulane University researcher Douglas Harris, this strategy has worked. His research shows students who go through a closure see an initial dip in test scores, but two years later, they're doing better than students who stayed in F-rated schools. Harris's newest study suggests the rise in overall test scores is directly tied to school closure and takeover. Close or take over the school, open another one. Close and take over school, open another one. You keep doing that. If you're doing it well, then those opening schools are better than the ones that that you're closing and taking over, and that's going to lead to improvement uh, in the city over time. And it did. Research from Tulane shows that before Hurricane Katrina, just 6% of New Orleans students tested at the quote-unquote mastery level. By 2016, more than 30% were at mastery. Since then, scores have been stagnant or even declining. But Harris says closures and takeovers are still having an overall positive impact. Everyone isn't sold on this idea, however. The way our system behaves is insane. It's like the opposite of common sense. Ashana Bigard is a parent and activist who helps students and families navigate New Orleans schools. She says the district's constant churn and burn of schools is destabilizing for students and their families. Children do not need to be constantly upheaved, their education disrupted, their friendships. Begard points to research showing that one of the most important things students need to thrive is stability, including stable relationships with teachers. Begard wants the district to stop closing schools. Instead, when a school is failing, Begard says the district should intervene. Let's find out why they're failing. But even if the district does know why a charter school is failing, state law prevents many types of intervention. Since Hurricane Katrina, state and local officials have redefined the role of New Orleans School District, saying charter schools should mostly govern themselves. NOLA Public Schools sees its main role as deciding when to open new charter schools and when to shut them down or turn them over to new management. Twenty minutes after Lafarge and his son leave their house, they arrive at Idea Oscar Dunn. It's in an old building that's seen a number of schools come and go. Lafarge walks Alencorn up to the front and sends him through the foggy glass doors. Overhead, a big metal marquee reads simply, Elementary School. The letters from an old name have been pulled off, and there's a blank space. Have a good day, buddy. Lafarge thinks Alencorn will be okay. He says he sees little signs his son wants to be at school. Today, he caught him checking his hairstyle. After waving goodbye, Lafarge continues around to the cafeteria for a breakfast meet and greet with the principal. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, grab yourself a pastry, a cup of coffee. Lafarge is beginning to build his new school community at Idea Oscar Dunn. And Harris's research suggests that if the school performs like other Idea charter schools, Alan Korn may do better academically here than Nelson. But Lafarge is not over the closure. Activist Ashana Bigard has begun organizing parents to file a lawsuit calling for a moratorium on school closures and new charter school openings. Lafarge was one of the first parents to sign on. For NPR News, I'm Jess Clark in New Orleans. I tell you, it sure is beautiful out here.
White folks sure know how to make some nice foliage. Oh, come on, Ruckus. You can't give the white man credit for the trees. We told you yesterday that low-income areas of major U.S. cities are often hotter than wealthy neighborhoods. It's the finding of an investigation from NPR and the Howard Center for Investigative Journalism at the University of Maryland. Today, we look at one of the best ways to beat the urban heat, trees. American cities are losing nearly 29 million trees every year. Many are struggling to reverse that trend. That includes Louisville, Kentucky, which, compared to its surroundings, has been getting hotter faster than any other U.S. city. NPR's Meg Anderson reports. Annie Hagler is walking down her block in Parc Duval, a lower-income neighborhood on Louisville's west side. It's lined with single-family homes and well-kept, tidy yards. First of all, it's my neighborhood, and I love it even without the things that I would want to have here. Things like trees. She points to a small, scraggly one in the grassy patch running down her street. That's the medium right there. They've got a tree in there, but it's one tree. There's another small tree behind it, and there are parts of this neighborhood with more trees. But overall, data shows the canopy here is about half the city average. Hagler says she thinks trees were just not a priority. Parc Duval used to be the site of a massive public housing complex. That was demolished, and construction started here in the late 90s. So after 20 years, if we had thought differently about the design, we might have put more trees here. Across Louisville, wealthier neighborhoods have as much as twice the tree coverage as low-income areas, many of which are communities of color. Jad Daly is president and CEO of the nonprofit American Forests. He says that pattern is often the case nationwide. If we show you a map of tree canopy in virtually any city in America, we're also showing you a map of income, and in many cases we're showing you a map of race and ethnicity in ways that transcend income. Trees aren't just pleasant. They're key to fighting heat. If you live in an area in cities that's seeing more extreme heat days, but you don't have tree cover to cool down your neighborhood, that can literally be a a life or death issue. According to an analysis by NPR and the Howard Center, low-income areas of cities across the country tend to be hotter than their wealthier counterparts. Those areas are hotter in part because they often have fewer trees. And that heat can take a toll on health. Here's Daly. The folks who are least likely to have air conditioning to weather heat waves. The folks who are most likely to have pre-existing health conditions that put them at greater risk from those heat waves aren't getting the benefits of trees. Between 2009 and 2014, 44 states lost tree cover in urban areas, according to the U.S. Forest Service. And when it comes to trees, many low-income areas are already starting at a deficit. Ked Stanfield, executive director of Louisville Grows, a nonprofit that plants trees, says it doesn't have to be that way. He took me to St. James Court in Old Louisville. It's a boulevard famous for its stately Victorian homes and an annual art fair. But we were there to see the huge, lush canopy towering over us. If you were to look at an aerial view of this, it wouldn't look too dissimilar from a forest. The trees shade us almost completely. Stanfield says it's a reminder of what's possible if trees are part of the plan from the beginning. For anybody that plants trees in a city, this is the goal. This is the dream. This is what you hope to create in these cities. But even if trees are in the plan, maintaining them takes money. A lot of money. This year, tree maintenance on this street, which is about a quarter mile long, will cost around $20,000, according to the Neighborhood Association. 
The city has planted and donated roughly 5,000 trees annually since 2013, but it loses about 54,000 every year, according to its own assessment, to invasive species, natural disasters, and urban development. And Louisville is facing a $35 million budget deficit. They've cut funding to emergency police and fire services. Mayor Greg Fisher says he'd like to plant more trees. But we've got to wrestle with this great American challenge, right? People want everything, but they don't want to pay for anything. When it comes to planting tens of thousands more, he says... City government's not going to be able to do all that by itself. He's counting on nonprofits and other institutions to fill in the gaps. At the University of Louisville's Envirome Institute, researchers are trying to make the case that trees are a must-have in city budgets. They're starting a study called the Greenheart Project and will plant full-grown trees as tall as 30 feet in a three-square-mile area in Louisville. The five-year study will measure how the health of hundreds of participants changes and compare them to a nearby control group. In short, they're testing trees the same way you test a new drug. The idea was to run this whole project as a clinical trial, uh, but instead of giving pills, we plant trees. Arani Bhatnagar is director of the institute, and he says beyond cooling a city down, studies have linked trees to much more. Better air quality, better stormwater management, lower energy costs, lower levels of stress, even a longer life. But Bhatnagar says you can't always isolate trees as the reason those things happen. So everything remaining the same... Now, if you put trees in it, what happens? He says cities have divorced themselves from nature, and now he wants to show what happens when you put nature back in. Meg Anderson, NPR News. It was a decade ago. The recession had crippled the economy. Conservative activists railed against the Affordable Care Act. They wanted to cut government spending, cut taxes, and rein in the debt. It was the birth of the Tea Party, a movement that took root in American politics and transformed the Republican Party. So how's the party now? According to Sarah Jones, the Tea Party is alive and well. That's the headline of her piece in New York Magazine, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So Tea Party lore points to this moment as seminal in the birth of the movement. It's CNBC's editor, Rick Santelli, on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. This is America. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand. How about we all? Uh, President Obama, are you listening? So that was February 2009. There were demonstrations the next month on tax day, then marches and gatherings all summer. What have you learned about the roots of the Tea Party movement? You know, looking back at it from the advantage of 10 years, I think it's pretty clear that there were a combination of factors, right? You mentioned the recession. So people were afraid and they felt threatened for legitimate reasons. The economy was just sort of collapsing around people. But I think, too, you have to take into consideration the election of Barack Obama, the nation's first black president. Damn you, Obama. So when you have Rick Santelli on CNBC with this rant, um, he's not just talking about government spending. He's talking about government spending on people who don't deserve it. And I think you can really see this synthesis of a racialized backlash to the election of Obama and to the recession. You know, you call racism the animating force of the Tea Party. Yes, that's right. 
And I think that was actually fairly clear at the time. You know, I remember attending some of these rallies not as a supporter, but to observe back in the day. And it was people were railing about immigrants. Um, they were railing about people who were on welfare and who they felt did not deserve to be on welfare and were taking money away from people who did deserve it. Um, it was highly racialized. And in that sense, they were drawing on really decades of stereotypes about poor and working class people in this country that were themselves heavily racialized. And you also say it, it wasn't fully an organic movement as it's been described. It was organic in the sense that these are really things that people believed in it was an astroturf campaign as well. And, you know, we know that thanks to the reporting of journalists like Jane Mayer, there were libertarian interests like the Koch brothers who were able to sort of capitalize on it and amplify the things that people believed and the things that people were saying. So it's actually, a, you know, a fairly complex movement and not truly a grassroots movement, I'd argue. So when you're weighing the motivations of the Tea Party, um, and as you say, you see racial animus there, what about people like Justin Amash, the Michigan Republican who ran for Congress as a Tea Partier, who's walked away from the Republican Party, has stayed really true to his core sort of fiscal principles? Is he an outlier? I do think that he's an outlier. When we're thinking about the sort of people who were elected because of the Tea Party, who really capitalized on that sentiment in order to win office, you know, we should think about the character of Paul Ryan, who was seen as a vital ally to the Tea Party movement. And while he was very critical of Trump, while Trump was still a candidate, once Trump was in power, Ryan really largely went along with the president's agenda and wasn't a source of dissent in a meaningful sense. And I would say that that's perhaps more characteristic of where the Tea Party is at. It's 10 years later. The government is set to hit a $1 trillion deficit. Did the party ultimately fail in its policy goals? It failed in one sense, which is that, yes, we still have this deficit. It's still there. But in other senses, I would argue that it's actually been very successful. Hmm. Again, going back to the example of Santelli, he was specifically angry that Obama was bailing out homeowners who were in trouble. You know, the Tea Party was never just about the deficit. And while they did support cuts to defense spending, they were angry about welfare. They wanted to cut welfare spending as well. Um, they wanted restrictions on immigration. And they're getting that from the Trump administration. That's Sarah Jones of New York Magazine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Never, never, never I say, for the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Never, never I say, because the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Cedra Woolley's streets are lined with a long history of its Wild West pioneering spirit, but the city also harbors a dark past. It's highly offensive for a lot of people. The Cedra Woolley Museum recently published this picture of a church dedication attended by members of the Ku Klux Klan back in 1926. The museum also republished a glowing newspaper article from that time recounting a parade where hundreds of Klansmen marched through town presenting an impressive appearance. The museum's newsletter was mailed to people all across town. Well, just imagine if you are a person of color or a person of the Jewish community or LBGTQ and you pull this out of your mailbox how traumatizing that would be. Jermaine Cornegay is the only person of color on the Cedra Woolley City Council. She doesn't object to the museum reprinting the past, but says there was no context given about the Klan's evil ways. She worries the mailer may have further normalized racist ideology given the current political climate. This is really painful. Cornegate now finds herself in the position of defending her city against people who brand it as racist, some of whom she knows. This makes it really hard. I didn't even tell them about this. 
You love this community? I do. Sorry. You can understand how this would be greatly offensive to a lot of people. Yeah. How does that make you feel? I feel horrible. Museum Executive Director Carolyn Freeman says the publication was meant to help people learn from the city's sometimes ugly history, and this will certainly be a learning experience for everyone. The shock value of people pulling this out of the mailbox was, um, was horrific, and that we apologize for. And they're just standing up. It looks so, how the heck? Cornegay now plans to sit on the museum's board, something Freeman welcomes the hatred of the past bringing better understanding today through a shared love for their community. Oh, thank you so much for hanging in there with us, and we'll learn. Thanks, we'll all learn. <laughs> in Cedro Woolley, Eric Wilkinson, King 5 News. If I saw a KKK member, I would not feel safe. I would want to run away. If you talk about the KKK without saying it's bad, I would feel scared and sad. So that young girl's among a handful of community members who weighed in on those images. Many say that throughout history, the KKK has tried several times to normalize themselves into society. One woman said tonight that to her, the Klan has represented terror, violence, and intimidation. A couple of questions, Gus. Yes, sir. Um, don't mind me asking you guys. <clears throat> um, what's going on with the, um, you know, that policewoman who decided to break into, well, she found herself in that uh, in that black man's uh, apartment, and she decided to shoot him. What, what 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 happened? What's going on with that? Jury selection is underway in the trial of a former Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger. One year ago, Officer Geiger was off duty when she says she mistakenly entered her neighbor's apartment, thinking it was her apartment, and shot 26-year-old Botham Jean dead in his living room. Geiger has been fired from the Dallas Police Department, and she is going to be tried for Jean's murder. NPR's Wade Goodwin has the story. 31-year-old Amber Geiger was coming off a double shift the night she killed Botham Jean. Geiger lived on the third floor of a modern apartment building, but on this night, she mistakenly parked on the fourth floor. She was weary, still in uniform, as she walked down a well-lit interior hallway to Jean's apartment, exactly above her own. He is in his house, and he is where he ought to be, not doing anything wrong. Paul Coggins is the former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Texas here in Dallas. Coggins says nobody knows for certain how Amber Geiger got inside John's apartment. She says his door was ajar, so she pushed it open. It was dark inside, and she saw a man in the living room. The off-duty officer pulled her service revolver and shot John in the chest while a football game played on TV. Yeah, this is Carla. Where's your emergency? Hi, this is an off-duty officer. Um, can I get... Geiger says she turned on the lights, and that's when she realized she wasn't in her apartment. She calls 911. The audio was obtained by Dallas TV station WFAA. During the call, Geiger's voice is panicked, breathless. I'm an off-duty officer. I thought it was in my apartment, and I shot a guy thinking that he was thinking it was my apartment. As she describes what happened, Geiger appears to realize how bad it sounds. I'm screwed, she says into her cell phone, only not using the word screwed. More than 20 times she repeats, I thought it was my apartment. Near the end, she adds one final detail, laying the foundation upon which her defense will almost certainly be built. I'm so tired, she tells the dispatcher. 
Attorney Paul Coggin says that while a civilian might not have realized the 911 call was being taped, Officer Geiger certainly did. And I'm also expecting the prosecutor to focus on the fact this is an officer who's going to be aware that this is tape recorded. So if there are statements that are favorable to her, they may have been put on there intentionally by her, knowing that she's made a huge, huge error here and is trying to color it. You know, black people in America are killed by police in some of the most unbelievable ways. Ben Crump is one of the attorneys for Botham Jean's family. Their family has no doubt in their mind that she shot both of them because she saw a black man and she thought criminal. The key elements of the case aren't in dispute. The question the jury must decide is, was this an accident or murder? Jean, who hailed from St. Lucia, was an up-and-coming associate at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Dallas and a leader in his local church. When Geiger was not arrested for several days, Jean's family was outraged. The question of whether Geiger is getting preferential treatment is now front and center. And Botham Jean's mother, Allison, has made it her mission to get justice for her son. At 26 years old, he had done so much. So if you extrapolate what he could have done, had he reached my age, then you would have seen how much I have lost. So I'm calling on the Dallas officials, whether it be the DA's office, I don't know the Dallas system. Please give me justice my son. Amber Geiger's defense team has asked Judge Tammy Kemp to move the trial out of Dallas County to one of Dallas's whiter, more conservative suburbs. But Judge Kemp has decided the court will try to seat a Dallas jury first before she rules on whether or not to grant the defense's change of venue motion. Wade Goodwin, NPR News, Dallas. And I went to Zimbabwe. It's a new country, right? It's about three years old now. Because it used to be Rhodesia before they killed all them white motherfuckers over there. <laughs> it's the only country I've ever been to. Black people kicked ass over there. We'll be dedicating today's podcast to the life and legacy of Zimbabwe's longtime former president, Robert Mugabe, who died today aged 95. He led Zimbabwe for 37 years until he was removed from office two years ago. We'll hear from Zimbabweans who lived under his rule when times were good and when times were bad. Not that I liked him, but I was in awe of Mugabe. Uh, we're talking about a leader who was one of the few African leaders to stand up against Britain. And we reflect on his mixed legacy as a defiant hero abroad by the dictator clinging to power at home. He's a really good guy to the rest of the world, but back home, we're struggling. Because while we're clapping and all that, you're hungry. Plus, we explore his time living in Ghana before he became leader of Zimbabwe in the 1950s and 60s. But first, let's hear from the man himself in his characteristic defiant style and manner, speaking to the BBC in 1980 after his first and historic election victory. In politics, you have to have an inbuilt system of shock absorbers. And uh, I just don't care what they say, as long as I know I'm right. So they can say anything in their papers, uh, damage me in every way possible, as long as the people I lead are behind me and approve of what we are doing. That's what matters. The rest of the world will one day, you see, be uh, uh, persuaded to believe we were right when we 
uh, resorted to armed struggle. It was a tenacity and determination that defined his 30 years in power that we'll explore. First, let's hear reaction from Harare from the BBC's Shingai Nyoka. As I woke up this morning and I heard the news that Robert Mugabe had uh, passed away, um, my mind just went back uh, to the years that he was president. Um, he was the leader of this country from the time that I was a young girl. And so I do vividly remember when he came into office, uh, the celebrations both at home um, and just on the streets of uh, what was then Salisbury, as uh, many people had so much hope um, about what Zimbabwe could be under him. And I remember at some stage um, he did live that out. As Zimbabwe was a prosperous country. Um, I did, and uh, as did many Zimbabweans, had a sense of pride um, about being Zimbabweans. It was a prosperous nation. It was a nation where um, so many, not just from Africa, but from all over the world, um, chose to make their home. And that was in the 80s as well as in the 90s. But I think we also began to see the cracks um, in the facade around him. It was difficult to witness the violence that was meted out to the opposition. Right. Um, as well as to the white farmers. Okay. So what's the atmosphere like in Harare today and, and the political reaction to his death? Well, one would think that when a colossal figure like this falls, that, they, that you'd feel it on the streets, but you don't. And um, some people have suggested that maybe it's because Zimbabweans are concerned with their own struggles. Um, he's been off the political scene for about two years. Uh, most Zimbabweans are going about their business. Uh, we did speak uh, to some of them who say that um, his legacy is a complex one. Some say that he ruined their lives. Um, others say that he was the first leader of this country and he needs to be given props for that. The BBC's correspondent in Harare, Shingai Nyoka. But let's go back to the beginning first. Shingai looks back over his long life as first a freedom fighter, then president, and finally the old man who was forced from office after 30 years in power two years ago. He was celebrated as Zimbabwe's liberator, leading a war against white minority rule. But by the end, the adulation Robert Mugabe once enjoyed was gone. He cemented his power, winning overwhelmingly at elections in 1980. I, Robert Gabriel Mugabe, do swear... As leader of a new nation, he set about creating a better country than the one he inherited. It was a euphoric era. Mr. Mugabe spent massively on education, creating the most literate country on the continent and a thriving black middle class. But beneath the veneer lay a dark side. A crack military unit deployed to contain an insurgency in central and southern Zimbabwe killed thousands of civilians. The world turned a blind eye. Mugabe was, after all, the great hope. But as the economy bottomed out, discontent simmered, and Mr. Mugabe played a political hand. He encouraged the restless population to take back their land, which was still largely in the hands of white farmers, and they did, often violently. The Western world took notice, breaking diplomatic ties and imposing economic sanctions. We don't mind having and bearing sanctions banning us from Europe. We are not Europeans. We have not asked for any inch of Europe or any square inch of that territory. So 
Blair, keep your England and let me keep my Zimbabwe. In 2008, a historic economic meltdown handed Mugabe his first electoral defeat. It led to more violence in the second round of voting. Opposition supporters were raped, tortured. Former allies, including South Africa's Nelson Mandela, condemned him. We have seen the outbreak of violence against fellow Africans in our own country and the tragic failure of leadership. In our neighboring Zimbabwe. Within his own party, many believed he'd overstayed and needed to hand over power. At over 90 years of age, his medical trips to the Far East had increased. Mr. Mugabe finally fired Emerson Mnangagwa, his vice president, accusing him of trying to topple him. Many believed he wanted to replace him with his wife Grace, 40 years his junior. With the help of the military, Mr. Mnangagwa mounted a comeback, placing the Mugabes under house arrest. Tens of thousands of Zimbabwe's marched, calling on him to step down. He resigned after a threat of impeachment. Many will remember him as a gifted orator and a visionary who liberated Zimbabwe, but later returned her to the shackles of oppression. And that was Shingai no Gabe speaking from Zimbabwe. Many of the older generation remember how Robert Mugabe's government brought education and health after decades of neglect by Ian Smith's white minority regime. But how will young Zimbabweans born in the post-independence period remember President Mugabe? Kuda Manjonjo and Patience Piri both grew up under Mugabe. Kuda in Harare and Patience in Bulawayo in the Matabili land region where some of the most repressive violent acts of Robert Mugabe's time in power took place. Kukurahundi was a brutal military campaign that saw more than 20,000 people killed by state security forces. Patience was a child at the time. So I was born in end of 81, and we had just attained independence in uh, April 1980. And then, lucky for me, because I'm from Matavila Land area, around 83, 84, Kukura then started. And then that became a thing. So you would mention Robert Mugabe's name when I grew up and where we were could, would not be mentioned without growing the following because that was what people felt and that's what he represented. And tell me, did people speak about Robert Mugabe then in fear, anger, hatred or what? I would say there was fear which then manifested itself into hatred. So in my region, he's not a famous person. This morning, someone said something very profound that, because I asked that, had he apologized or, God forbid, he had not actually done the stupid thing, would we feel differently about him? And someone made me realize the power of the word sorry, that if he had apologized and acknowledged that this did happen, maybe we would feel some type of way, which is not how we feel now. Let's uh, uh, turn to Kuda. In your household, as a child, because you're both in your mid to late 30s, what was the attitude with which people spoke about Robert Mugabe? For us, I guess, it was really more of a strong disdain when I was not growing up. Uh, I was born in 92, so maybe I'm a decade younger than patients here. So when I grew up in the early 2000s, land reform was happening. The economy was beginning to tank. So there was a lot of anger being an urban 
boy myself too. There was a lot of anger over what was happening. Uh, we're talking about a generation that had seen the good side of Zimbabwe, more or less uh, the good economic side of Zimbabwe, and they're now seeing this happening in their lives. So there's a lot of anger. A lot of people are now leaving the country, which also affected people's relations uh, with Mugabe since he refused to acknowledge some of the pain he was doing, uh, be it political or social. Uh, it was a very stubborn response from him with from people's anger. So what sort of independent views then did you form of Robert Mugabe? To, to be fair, I, I not that I liked him, but I was in awe of Mugabe. Uh, we're talking about a leader who was one of the few African leaders to stand up against Britain. Uh, and for, that, for us, that was huge. Um, so we grew up with that revolutionary mindset. That's, if anything, I got from Robert Mugabe was that, that revolutionary mindset, that will, that desire. Uh, that was something that instilled with us. Uh, having a president say, Britain... Uh, stay away from us. It was it was amazing. And seeing the rest of Africa respond to that and people really looking up to Zimbabwe as this shining beacon. It was it was, it was ironic because within the country itself, we we're complaining. But the independent views I got from there was there has to be something that is doing right if the rest of the world sees something. Maybe us as Zimbabweans are not getting his message. But of course, as I grew up now, uh, you start seeing how complex it was. Okay, so Patience, uh, did you seize some of the admiration that the rest of the world held and the regard that people had for Robert Mugabe? You grow up in an, a place where already people decide for you and then you have the opportunity to live under this man. And like he's saying, Kuda, that then in 2000 we took another dip and it was watching people lose just about everything. And it was watching white farmers lose their farms and things like that. So we took another turn. And he's like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because he <laughs> stood out to the, <laughs> to the rest of the world. He stood out and he took a stand. That made us proud. I, I, the one thing that I, I like to take pride in is that he reminded me or he, he taught us that we are equals with white people. And we had to come from a war where white people, and I think in our region, because South Africa was going through that, where black was bad and white was really good and superior. But then he then took, he would take a stand and go up and say to Tony Blair, Blair, keep your England, I'm going to keep my Zimbabwe. And then he would bring that down. So I felt, okay, he's a really good guy to the rest of the world. But back home, we're struggling. He would come home and, yeah, it, it, it would be hard because while we're clapping and all that, you're hungry and you don't have the money and you can't afford the hospital fees or if there's any hospital that can even do anything for you. So that's why I'm saying you're the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He had good, I guess he had good stuff about him. And then he had really bad, he had a really dark side. He had a really dark side because okay. as a journalist, it was also at that time that um, the laws became repre uh, repressive as well. Kuda, what's the atmosphere like in Harare? I think, Mugabe, this is the second death, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think when he left, when he was taken out of power in the coup uh, two years ago now, that that was the genuine death, if you can put it that way. People went out in the streets, everyone was happy and the likes. But once that political death happened, what you're having now is people really just looking back and thinking about how terrible this man actually was to them or how fond they were for some people. Uh, there, there's some people who I know I talked to who benefited from land reform and they were mm. crying saying that if he hadn't done that, 
I would not be where I am uh, holding soil that I can actually say is mine. So it's it's more of people just seeing another day happening and they're having their own private conversations with themselves and thinking and really looking at what Mugabe and what that meant for them since it's actually happening now as a finality. Kuda, Manjonjo and Patience Piri on the president they knew and grew up under as children. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 7, 2019. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, suggestions, uh, counter-racist ideas. Uh, the number 605 313 Five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Many things to share uh, before we get to the callers uh, trying to make sure I grab uh, recall as, as many things as I can so I don't forget. In the, the final segment, they were talking about the uh, passing, uh, the late Robert Mugabe, victim of white supremacy. And they said that around the world, he's known as such a great man. That is a metaphor. Uh, I guess it would depend on where you happen to be and whom is doing the talking. Uh, Because most of the time when I hear uh, people talk about Robert Mugabe, particularly individuals classified as white, it is not in glorifying and, oh my goodness, That Robin Mugabe was something special. Wow. What a hero of anti-colonialism, of freedom. That is not what I, the dictator, cowardly Robert Mugabe. It's always, you know, they talk about him, you know, Obama, him, Osama bin Laden, Bill Cosby, all about the same uh, level. That's all I've ever heard uh, about Robert Mugabe. I can't think of a time where it's not been presented, even when it's not a particular white person doing the talking, if it's just a presentation that comes on uh, the news. uh, It's generally just what I just said. Not anything positive, nothing constructive. This is a dastardly fella. You should not want to be like him or think well about him. This is a no good Nick for sure. Uh, Let's see. Wow. The report on food. I thought that was so important. I guess there were a couple uh, different reports uh, about farming agriculture as a form of protest, very similar to what we discussed at the yoga retreat. Uh, The second report uh, about the, and that was audio. So I don't have video to be able to to see if this was a white person or a non-white person, Uh, but the report lost their sight because of what they were eating and eating non healthy, unhealthy foods. They said white bread 
potato chips, probably some Cheetos, nonsense, and ended up going blind. Wow. What you eat is critically important. Uh, when I heard that, the cow's 10-year anniversary counter-racist yoga retreat, that is a major theme. We might play that clip again. Major theme of why we're doing the retreat. That's what we talked about in Virginia in February. That's what, that is the, or I can't say the whole reason, but I mean, that is right there. Primary reason why we are doing the retreat. Really, both of those clips. Uh, that is a major form of counter-racism. Just, what am I eating? That's a, you know you're going to eat every day. Very few things that you know with certainty uh, while you are in this existence of white supremacy, that is one. I'm going to have to eat something today. Hopefully I'll be able uh, to put my hand on something that I can eat. I'm going to try and make sure it is as nutritious as possible. I'm not sure the Popeye's chicken sandwich counts or even the Chick-fil-A one. I'm going to try to eat something as nutritious as possible. Well, what did you eat today, Gus? I'm so glad you asked. Today I had a smoothie for breakfast Lots of fresh fruits, vegetables, uh, blueberries, blackberries, plums, just fresh ginger was absolutely awesome. I had, what else did I eat today? I had cashews, unsalted cashews for like a snack in the middle of the afternoon. I broke out my spiralizer. I had been planning to do this for some time. Talk about unhealthy eating. Whew. I have been a champion of unhealthy eating, unfortunately, in my time as a victim of racism. Uh, I have been to, I probably would have been, I probably would have been right there. They would have video footage of Gus T out slugging it out in the parking lot over a fried chicken sandwich or something, you know, onion, anything, nonsense. Trying to do better. I had talked about wanting to use my spiralizer. I had seen a recipe previously. Uh, I loved uh, Chinese food, which a lot of times is not the best. A lot of MSG and a lot of that sometimes can be fried foods too. Um, but I used to love lo mein. Probably a lot of MSG and salt content in that too. Uh, but I saw a recipe that you could use uh, golden beets. You could spiralize them and use that as the noodles and make it a much healthier option and it would still taste like, you know, the lo mein that you're accustomed to. So I bought the golden beets. Uh, you can't be in a what they call food desert. Uh, I don't think they have uh, organic golden beets there. That's why I said Seattle, amazing produce here in the Pacific Northland. That's the whole, they probably have lots of those in California too. Anyway, so I got my organic golden beets, uh, my sugar snap peas, which I love. I was out of mushrooms, which was criminal because uh, I hadn't thought that I was going to do this today, but I had everything else uh, to do it up. Um, shredded carrots, fresh ginger, purple garlic, which is a Pacific Northwest signature. Uh, had all of the ingredients, broke out my spiralizer, uh, got the golden beets into angel hair pasta, made the dish, even added a little bit of peanut butter uh, to the sauce. I was absolutely amazed uh, at how, well, I'm telling you all about it. 
I was, in fact, I said, I remembered uh, Black African. He said, if there are any dishes that you're confident enough that you can make at the retreat, you could try it out. I was so stunned. It took me a few, uh, like, I was using chopsticks, so it took a few mouthfuls uh, for me to, like, really believe, like, wow, this is really good. It's, in fact, it is so tasty. I think I could do this at the retreat. Now, getting the golden beets, I don't know if they would have them uh, in Florida, but wow, it was absolutely amazing. And everything, every single thing, every single ingredient, all vegetables, super tasty. Wow. Just absolutely amazed. It makes such a huge difference when you use fresh ginger, not the powdered. Absolutely amazing. Uh, but that, as opposed to eating Cheetos nonsense, he went blind just eating freaking nonsense, as opposed to being able to get lots of exactly what they said in the report, fresh fruits, vegetables. Broccoli was featured, of course. Always got to get the broccoli in there. But that's something we could have at the retreat. And I didn't even, I wasn't even uh, concerned about the chicken sandwich. I had heard about all the hysteria. I'm vegan. They have lots of Popeyes around here. So they had all that foolishness here as well. Uh, a friend of mine who knows that I am vegan sent me a recipe for a vegan version of the chicken sandwich i said well, we should do that at the retreat we should try it out uh i don't it's been a while since i've had chicken so doesn't take a whole lot to fool me at this point but they do have such a recipe i don't think it would be too difficult uh to concoct especially if we let uh, chef nadira know but we could have vegan fried chicken try it out see if it's tasty make it from scratch could try it out for the counter racist yoga retreat December 28 to January 1 down in Florida. Again, thoughts and prayers uh, to folks in the path of Hurricane Dorian, Caribbean, Southeast United States. Hope you all are safe, doing well, no loss of life or health, major property. Uh, hopefully by December 28, hurricane season will be done everyone will be safe and we can go ahead with our retreat and emphasize the importance of eating correctly just trying as best you can growing even some of your own food that was talked about maybe even trying that out exercising taking care of ourselves and counter racism all really the same thing but all of that at the yoga retreat uh, hopefully it'll be warm, no hurricanes, no mud, uh, and we can recharge and prepare for a constructive, productive 2020, ending this year and starting the new year with the retreat. Drop an email if you would like details, information, uh, deposit is due next Sunday. Uh, if folks are interested, looking forward Drop an email if you have suggestions, questions, ideas, things that we can include uh, for the retreat. The golden beet lo mein, I think, should be on the menu. I'm so impressed. Wow. Get a spiralizer. That could be another way to use ve get vegetables in there. Continuing. Uh, last week, I said 
I thought one of the critical aspects of all of the NFL signing Jay-Z and, you know, did he betray us and is he a sellout and all of that, victim of racism, period. I said, all of this happened concurrently with a white man, suspected race soldier, Andrew Luck, retiring and saying, I'm good. This game is violent. I'm a smart white man. I'm going to use my brain computer for other things than going out here and getting brain damage. And there were lots of reports saying, oh, my goodness, whoa, this is going to be tough for the NFL. They used the term reeling. That's what I saw. Reeling. The NFL is reeling from Andrew Luck, this white man deciding to hang up his cleats, not going to play anymore. Values his health. Like, whoa, what kind of message does that send? You got a white man in his 20s who doesn't want to sling the old pigskin anymore, Dr. Welsing. I said this happening concurrently with Jay-Z. This is, wow, the hallowed position in football. We don't even let Negras toss the football. You got to be, you know, a running back or something else. You can't got to have a white man. As a quarterback, the white man is saying, no, thank you. I said this could all be a part of, hey, we will make it a super nigger league. NFL will be nigger football league. That's what it'll be. We'll make it super, super black and they can get all of the football, uh, all of the brain damage. And that'll just be our entertainment. They could do that easily. Lo and behold, I said that on the compensatory call in last Saturday. Uh, within days of that, uh, the undefeated, uh, which is a subsidiary of ESPN, they have a report year of the black quarterback, and they have a huge image of Russell Wilson, uh, Seattle's own, right here where I am, his stadium right down the street here, uh, or not, my apologies, not his stadium. They just have his picture blown up. Massive error by Gus T. My apologies, not Russell Wilson's stadium where he is allowed to play workplace racism. Watch those possessive adjectives. Woo. My apologies. So they have a huge picture of Russell Wilson. He's a black male uh, quarterback for the Seahawks. He's been here for years, not as long as the cows though. Uh, so I'm not going to read the entire report, but it's, it's a series no less. My goodness. So it's a series chronicling the rise of black quarterbacks in the NFL. I have to pause. We've been here for 10 years. Dr. John Hoberman, the whole thesis of his book, Darwin's Athlete, he was a guest on the program in 2009. It's been over a decade. About the whole premise of that book is that this sort of thing is very common uh, where we will celebrate accomplishments of black athletes. Like if Serena Williams had won today, oh my goodness, wow. Black women are doing it. Champions, they you know dealt with black males and Bill Cosby and yeah, no, even if she had won. No, the system of that cowbell, number one, even if she had one, no, we're still in a system of racism, white supremacy. You can go out and beat 50 uh, white women in tennis or any other sport. We're still in a system of racism. Doesn't matter how many uh, rings Michael Jordan wins, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Russell Wilson, how many black quarterbacks. We're still in a system of racism. Most important. But the first paragraph, it reads, this is week zero of the new NFL. The reigning MVP is a black quarterback, the highest paid player in the league history, 
is a black QB. The number one overall draft pick is a black signal caller. Multiple franchises have black men as their face who are also in line for new deals in excess of $100 million. After decades of being blocked, black folk have changed the NFL under center and the league will never be the same. Black folk have changed the NFL. Hmm. In my view, this is all part of the system of racism. You will see whites, and Mr. Fuller has talked about this, white people are so skillful, they can just recede. You will probably, it'll probably be whenever Tom Brady retires, another white man suspected race soldier, when he leaves, that'll be the end of the, yes, white people jumping in and having, you know, major white people in lots of the positions and dominating. It'll be super, super black people at the quarterback, at all the positions. You'll have white people doing the coaching. Uh, white Mr. Goodell will probably be still commissioner, that sort of thing. White people making all the billions of dollars from all of this brain damage and violence, but it'll be super black. You can even, we can even look at the numbers. I would say, look at the percentage of black players in the NFL 2018, and then check in like five years and see if the percentage has changed. Has it gone up? Is it about the same? I would predict it's going to go up. If you check back in about five years, let the niggers get all the brain damage. Next. Speaking of brain damage, and I picked that word intentionally, I mentioned this briefly uh, yesterday, but it is for sure worth repeating. Uh, There's a reason I say sobriety would be best. Every broadcast. Uh, I had a victim of white supremacy uh, that I know, have seen, Uh, and he says, wow, I had to talk to a friend of mine today, and he said that you know, he got a DUI. So my goodness, in my mind, sobriety would be best. And he says he knows that he got this DUI because he woke up at home. He's got this ticket. He says he, he doesn't even remember what happened. And I said, excuse me. And he says that he woke up. He was in jail. He remembers his dad coming to pick him up. He got home. He went to bed. That's it. He doesn't remember how he got arrested. He doesn't remember the arrests. Like, doesn't remember. In a system of white... You got Amber Geiger, white woman, who is shooting black people in their residence while watching football, no less. Uh, Can you imagine something has happened And you, I mean, he didn't contest. He didn't say, I wasn't under the influence. I don't drink. You know, maybe they drugged me or maybe the enforcement officers did something to me. Maybe I was kidnapped. Like, that wasn't suggested. So I'm assuming that he's at least saying, yeah, I did drink. I do, you know, think that that happened at some point. Like, can you imagine where you have drank to the point where you have blacked out, basically, and you have been arrested and you've blacked out in all of this? Like, not understand confusion is lethal that's why i said brain damage confusion is lethal when you do not understand what white supremacy racism is there is already a war so many times people say you know war breaks out amber geiger shot a unarmed black male in his own residence not to mention dylan roof and all the other events white supremacy racism is war You want to be functional and have your brain computer operating at maximum 
efficiency at all times. It is, I was going to use a metaphor, it is a lethal gamble, could be fatal, uh, where you cannot function, I mean, to the point where you have blacked out, my goodness. The ra- I mean, I'm surprised that he is even not in custody uh, at this point. I'm surprised that they released him. Uh, that's what I mean. If it's that bad, like <sighs> lots of things uh, could have happened in that situation. Like, wow, you do not want to take that sort of risk. Anything that you can do to minimize that, do so. And make sure you share that with students. We're starting a new academic year. I'm sure we got some parents <clears throat> might have children that are going off to college or wherever. That is for sure one to share. Everyone likes to have fun and do their partying experiment. As they say, you still want to use logic. And you can tell them, observe, see what happens uh, to the individuals that go out and do a lot of drinking. And does this increase problems for them? Does this minimize problems? You can just observe. You got a great uh, brain computer. That is a metaphor. You got a a great brain computer. Use it. Observe, be a scientist. Does going out and drinking, does that make things better for the people that do so? Especially the non-white people. You can pay attention to the whites, but especially the black people. Does this make things better for them? See what your observation is. Next on the list. When they mentioned, uh, oh, I gotta give one more personal anecdote. Uh, so I brag regularly on Seattle, best plantation that I've been to, best plantation uh, in uh, the United States, easily, no competition. Uh, I went to two different uh, beaches that I had not visited previously uh, this week, and you could probably spend a good six months to a year doing that in the Seattle area because there's so many uh, beaches and parks. It's just amazing. Uh, so the second body of water that we visited, Black Lake. Uh, this is up uh, close to Olympia, if you want to look on a map. Beautiful uh, region. It was a sunny day. We were going to a non-white person. They were having a party. Um, amazing. I attempt to go down to the lake, me being ignorant. I think, you know, there's got to be public access. No. So I'm walking down Uh, There's a white man, suspected race soldier. He's out polishing his car. And I say, you know, excuse me, sir. uh, Is there, uh, where's the public access for the lake? And he just looks at me. Doesn't utter a word, just looks. There's about a good four seconds of silence. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. I am not supposed to be here. Understood. And he found after about four seconds of silence, he says, uh, walk down about 100 yards. So, yes, sir. (laughs) Exit. I go to walk the 100 yards and I look to the left. And it's paved. I can see the lake Uh, and there's a dock and there's a tent set up. It's an open field. I'm like, oh, okay, got it. So I'm walking down close to the beach like, wow, that, you know, race soldier back there. Like, oh, my goodness, this is Washington. White people are really about guns like Seattle is. Tem- uh, Amazon headquarters here is tech. Microsoft headquarters here. Starbucks headquarters here. So it is really uh, hipster, as they say. But Washington state in general is very rural. Uh, and so you have a lot of white. In fact, the the uh, 
bumper, not the bumper sticker, but the decal on a lot of vehicles is love, coffee, and guns. That's the decal. I think they might even sell something similar to that at like Starbucks or coffee places, but coffee and guns, Dr. Welsing. Sad I never asked her about that. Anywho, so it's lots of white people here with guns and Olympia is more rural. You've moved away. It's like an hour outside the south uh, of Seattle. So I get down this paved drive and I'm like, man, he could have had a gun. Like, man, this is a dangerous environment. I know there are no niggers out here. I have not seen any. Uh, and I'm about three quarters of the way down this drive. And I look and I say, you know, this is not a public access to the park. This is a private drive. I stop. I raise my hands. I walk back up the hill. I hope I don't get shot in the back trying to exit. I did think of the movie Get Out uh, briefly. Thankfully, I made it to the top. At that point, kind of two risky situations generally would be enough to at least make me pause. Gavin DeBecker, The Gift of Fear, like maybe it's not worth it to visit the lake. Uh, I don't have a white friend who can, you know, get me through these traps. Maybe it's not worth it. If it had been dark, I probably would have turned around. It was, you know, broad daylight. I continue. I get to the park and think, victory, I'll be able to go hang out at the lake. All this will be worthwhile. I get there. Even the park is private. I turn around. I go back uh, to where the festivities are. Thankfully, the non-white homeowner, uh, since he lives there, he has park access. So I get the key go back and, in fact, have a whole caravan now because everybody wants to go uh, down to the lake. So we go back, hang out, awesome, sit on the deck. The water is amazing. Uh, it's just, wow, amazing. Seattle's amazing. We aren't even in Seattle anymore. So there are lots of whites out. They're on their boats, sea-doos. I was very envious. Uh, said mission next time is to find non-white friends who have sea-doos. Uh, so they're doing all of that. And so one set of whites, they drive the boat over to where we are at the dock. And they had been like pulling the folks on the back on the smaller boat. There were people out on like jet skis too. They were doing it up big time. So uh, my friend, he asks, he says, oh, you have so much space. Like, can let's let's go on your boat. Can you let us come on and ride? I said, oh, no, 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 we're not <laughs> And so they pull off. And my friend was like, oh, man, like you should have you should have asked if you could have leaves written on the back. And uh, before, you know, I could even respond, he said, I don't think they would have said yes. And I said, yeah, I agree. I don't think they, they would have been for pulling a Negro on the back of their bus. And then I said, uh, the thought in my mind was now, would you actually trust them even if they did allow this? Would you trust them with your life? And, you know, no need to even answer that question. Uh, but it was spectacular. Wow. Lots of pretty places to visit in the Seattle area. Racism will still be there, unfortunately. Uh, let's see. Speaking of Washington State, the segment where the museum sent out the flyer with the KKK being there to celebrate the church, that was in Washington State. And it was a black female that they had out to do the interview uh, to apologize for this and talk about victim of racism, talk about how bad, you know, all this was and why there was no context. Uh, I thought it was important in that segment. Uh, they said, well, you send this out in the mail without context. And so someone gets it. I imagine how uh, a Jewish person would feel to get this or a black person or an LGBTQ person 
I said, now, wait a minute. Let's. Uh, I think, number one, the evidence undisputed, even the Southern Poverty Law Center now accused of practicing racism themselves. Even they, I think, would concede that the people who have been killed and terrorized the most by far by the Klan and all their affiliate organizations are black people. That would be number one. Number two, I am not aware of any signs that say LGBTQ, don't let the sun hit you. Like, I do not remember that at all in sundown towns. I remember James Lowen talking about them having more lenient attitudes towards that in towns that were not sundown, that had non-white people present. But I do not remember at all that being a pattern like, oh, yeah, or having something equivalent to no niggers, like no fags here or whatever it would be. I do not remember that at all. I have never seen an exhibition, and I mean never. I've never seen, I've never heard of an exhibition of the Klan going out and hunting and killing people who identified as LGBTQ, any of the other uh, letters that they attach on to it. I've never heard or seen an exhibition uh, of that. I'm not talking about a one-time thing, a five-time thing where this was regular clan activity. I've never heard of that. And we've talked to a lot of people, uh, historians, authors, professors about the clan. I've never heard about that. That sort of deception right there, in my view, is so important, particularly when we're talking about a group that is infamous for terrorizing niggers specifically. Niggers, apes, alligators, coons, and possums. A lot of opportunities to add another letter in there. Uh, let's see. I will stop there. Uh, this is our compensatory call-in, so I generally make our one, my one request uh, that we not use metaphors. There were a number uh, of them used in the different segments. Uh, the town has a dark history that sent out the KKK flyer. Uh, Amber Geiger she may have wanted to color her story because she knew she was being recorded. Uh, that was from the NPR report using the term color to suggest that she may have been lying. I think when we had uh, Dr. Jason Miller on the program a couple weeks back, a uh, suspected racist white man, he did the same thing. Uh, instead of saying lie, he said uh, that a different white person would shade information. It's the same thing uh, where all of these metaphors support racism, white supremacy. They have uh, dark side was used. Dark history uh, was used. Uh, if we could not use metaphors, I'm of the view I've concluded uh, racists. That is one of the main ways right there that they practice racism using uh, metaphors, analogies, similes that support white supremacy subtly, sometimes not so subtly, and they will make inaccurate comparisons. That's a part of the deception. They will take two separate uh, entities and insist that they are identical. Exact same thing. And frequently that's not the case at all. Uh, that is master deception, white supremacy. Victims, including Gus T., we've been exposed to this misconduct for a lot of years. Uh, we are still learning, myself included, sometimes uh, we will substitute as opposed to logic because we haven't come to a conclusion uh, on some matters. We'll substitute logic for a metaphor, analogy of some sort. Frequently, that just produces more confusion. If we could be specific, direct, 
exact about what it is that we want to say, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. Uh, if you could take five minutes to share your comments, questions, suggestions, uh, that would be grand, uh, just to make sure everyone has at least one chance to speak. Uh, if you have additional comments, uh, we'll have time once everyone has spoken at least once. Uh, if you could also use your mute button, uh, just to make sure... <clears throat> We don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, uh, people are watching the game or yelling or whatever it is, uh, just try to get you know to a quiet spot. You can share your comments and then mute your line again. Just helps preserve the quality of the broadcast. Much obliged. Uh, number again, 605-313-5164. Decode 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh first few folks uh who dialed in if you have comments questions suggestions uh to share line should be open uh pro hmm all right first few folks who dialed in uh if you have comments questions to share line should be open proceed Hi, Jack. Be in Toronto. Good to hear from you. Great to hear from you. Greetings to you. Um, call is a listener. Your volume is a little low. Uh, I'm a little hesitant because it might be me, but it does seem like your volume is a little low. Yes, that is better. Oh, perfect. Um, yes, greetings to you, callers and listeners. Um, so yes, I, I was uh, watching a documentary today called um, A Boy Named Moses. It's a CBC documentary that uh, anyone can access through YouTube. And um, it's about a, a young black child uh, who came from uh, Liberia, um, uh, that was war torn um, during the time with uh, with the civil uh, fighting, um, and what occurred is um, this young boy uh, named Moses. Um, he was adopted at the age of four by a white Canadian couple, I believe, in the um, British Columbia, uh, Vancouver Island area. Now, at first, the white can, uh, Canadian couple said that um, Moses um, was articulate, funny, uh, great to be, a joy to be around. Um, and then uh, in a span of six months, um, uh, the description of him completely reversed. They started to claim that Moses uh, was talking about guns, um, played with knives and was hiding knives underneath his pillow and was disruptive. Um, so mind you, Moses at this point is four and a half years old. Um, so when a reporter um, from the CBC went to speak to the white Canadian couple, um, uh, the, the, father, the foster father, who I would uh, label as the criminal, um, the foster father would uh, describe Moses as doing stupid things like not going to the toilet. Now, usually um, uh, four to seven years old, they, they would have um, accidents occasionally. 
um, either because they just weren't able to get to the toilet quick enough, um, their bladder is not able to to hold um, before voiding. So it's, I mean, it's quite common among among children within that age. Um, but the foster father, uh, Keith Moses, who's only four and a half at the time of doing stupid things like that. Um, so uh, what the white Canadian family uh, or uh, white Canadian uh, uh, parents did was they they did what's known as rehomed Moses. Um, now the term rehomed was originally for pets, so that if there were pets that were disruptive, then um, the owners would put up an ad uh, stating that they um, have a disruptive pet. Um, whom else would like to take on this pet uh, so that they can go to a new home? So that's what they did to Moses, is they, they rehomed him. And apparently, um, it's basically child trafficking, um, where, uh, you know, they would go online, they would advertise children uh, for sale or trade. And this is happening between Canada and the U.S., and uh, they used to have a board on Yahoo, which it was found that uh, uh, rehomed ads for children, in particular um, international children who were adopted, was happening at least once a week. Um, so uh, what usually happens is that uh, the white families um, who adopted international children, um, they would... Uh, do the posting, meet, and then they would do the trade. But they, the family would not look into whether the child is going into a safe home. Um, so in this case with Moses, Moses was traded to a white Texas woman who had uh, charges against her from the CPS, um, ch- the Child uh, or Children Protective um, Services or Child Protection Services. Uh, so she had a number of charges against her, but um, the white Canadian uh, uh, foster family didn't bother looking into that. Um, child welfare in Canada uh, was monitoring the situation, and it comes to find out that the white foster family for Moses was um, actually emotionally abusing him and um, putting in false memories and making false allegations against him of being disruptive and violent when he wasn't. So he was being subjected to emotional abuse. There was already plans for him to be removed and put into another foster family. Um, 30 seconds. What was really... Oh, sorry. Uh, What was interesting about this is that no one was charged. And when the reporter went to ask the the foster, um, the the Ministry of Child Welfare in Canada as to why no one was charged, um, all they had to say about it was that um, the family has a right to privacy. So it's really interesting how white supremacy protects these criminals who engage in child trafficking. Thank you. And I leave the line. Much obliged. Be in Toronto. Uh, what's the name of the documentary? Uh, quickly. Sure, it's called "A Boy Named Moses." Awesome. Much obliged. Global system of white supremacy. Uh, others who dialed in that we missed totally. Uh, if you have commentary, proceed.
May I be heard? Yes, sir. What's going on, everybody? Uh, my name is Bouchara. I'm calling out of uh, St. Louis. Uh, first time caller, long time sporadic listener. But uh, for some reason, I've been unable to catch you live. I always seem to catch it uh, what you post on YouTube. So I, I just wanted to uh, respond real quick to the the caller who just called in in Toronto uh, real quick. Uh, I just wanted to say white families are only able to adopt black children because of uh, racism and uh, Western-created conflicts in the in regions where black people live, whether it's uh, drugs in urban America or civil wars in places like Africa. So that's something that I've been realizing. Nobody needed, kind of like what Mugabe said, nobody needed anything from Europe. We didn't need foster homes or foster parents until they came and conquered or massacred people. And I also want to talk about the, uh, in the, the video you played, it says something about trees or uh, they were talking about trees not being in urban areas and the, the government didn't want to pay for it and they were expecting for, I guess, what, NGOs or non-government uh, organizations to pay for it. And I just feel like these uh, mega billionaires or these organizations, a lot of them are, are fronts and scapegoats for the for the government, they're kind of like set up to buy and do things that the government should be doing, and it kind of lets them off the hook. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's how I look at putting the the, the power in the private sector hand or whatever they call it. And the the part where you were listening to the uh, where you played the the part about Robert. Uh, the late president who just passed, uh, Robert Mugabe. Uh, I, I just felt like that's pure um, tactics of the racist white media. No leader is a peacekeeper, especially, I mean, no major leader in in a position such as he was is a peacekeeper, especially when they're dealing with consistent assassination attempts and sabotage from the CIA and other Western intelligence, uh, economic sanctions and media trickery. And I mean, you see, they were using black people to kind of belittle him. I mean, he hasn't even been dead, what, 48, 72 hours. And they're already on a, a, a wave of making sure that you remember that this man is the devil. And, you know, they didn't do Reagan like that or any of these other people. But they immediately jump on this African man to make sure that nobody digs up anything on him to make sure that you know that he was a warmonger or whatever they want you to believe. And the woman who was speaking ill of him is is a perfect example. The black lady seconds. who was doing majority. Okay. And the woman who was speaking majority bad about him, she was just, she's the perfect example of, of what sanctions do to a nation. They create conditions and people who complain and can't deal with the struggle. So they end up committing like treason against their own liberation. So that's all I want to speak about. I do have uh, a question. Um, did we like join? I think the, the term they use is enlist. Um, 
are you aware of any black people uh, enlisting in some sort of militarized effort to end racism, white supremacy, because you use the term treason, uh, and that's generally a military term. As I understand it, treason implies that somebody has uh, committed an act, a traitorous act uh, in time of war. Uh, a military combatant generally is the only person who can commit an act of, of treason. Uh, someone who has violated sanction against their country uh, have we made some sort of bond, uh, non-white people? Have we enlisted uh, to form some sort of group or country or military effort to fight racism, white supremacy? Oh, no, we haven't. I was speaking as far as the Zimbabweans, or who I assume that was who was speaking for him. Mm -hmm. It seems like she was speaking, you know, against her own liberation, basically saying that Europeans rule is better than African rule. So they'd rather have hit the velvet strong hand glove than just a regular strong hand or whatever they want to call it. But that's basically what I took from that, the way she was talking. Because she, she had all negative things to say about him. And it's almost like they commit treason against themselves, basically against their own liberation from those sanctions and things like that. So I wasn't speaking about us in America. We, as far as I know, we haven't done anything of the sort as far as organizing and militarizing anything. Thank you for the detail. I appreciate it, sir. Uh, I would, uh, not a problem. regardless of which part of the world it is, uh, I would generally encourage non-white people to uh, avoid using the word treason uh, to describe the conduct of another victim of white supremacy. Uh, I suspect, I suspect she would be in trouble with Zimbabwe officials if she had committed an act of treason. Uh, I suspect that they have laws uh, about what that is, if that were the case. Uh, and at minimum, to me, that sounds like it could be uh, a metaphor. Uh, I think non-white people have disagreements with other non-white people and how we respond to racism on a pretty uh, regular basis, uh, particularly uh, elected officials. Uh, I know I heard a lot of that with President Obama. I heard that with uh, the late Nelson Mandela, Madiba. That happens on a pretty regular basis. People disagree even with how they're you know, supposed to be doing things that are supposed to help black people. I would just use exercise caution with the word treason. Uh, and metaphors, scapegoat, off the hook, velvet hand, uh, quite a few uh, metaphors. We are supposed oh, to be yeah. mindful of words we are using. Uh, much of black first time caller. Well, those. yeah, but just pure racism, white supremacy is what what basically what I meant to say. No velvet hands, just basically, iron. You know, just racism, white supremacy is what it sounds like she prefers. Thank you, much obliged, sir. And first time caller, uh, thank you for dialing in live uh, and catching the program on YouTube. That is Mr. Fox. Thank you for the assistance in uploading the content. Uh, content. Uh, other folks, can I ask you a quick question before I go? Uh, let's hear it. It's real quick. I mean, it, it might not be important to you, but I mean, I was listening to old shows and I, I just want to know what happened to uh, Justice. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we're a decade. So <laughs> she arrived at 10. Like you can do the math. She is now 20 and just doing school and doing what other 20 year olds are doing with their time and energy. But she certainly uh, understands what you just pointed out system of racism, white supremacy and has pointed it out as she has uh, aged, but just. Yeah, she is now 20 and doing school and doing life. That's what's up. Yeah, that's all I needed. I appreciate it, man. Y'all.
I'm I'm mute my line now. Much obliged, sir. Justice, phenomenal legacy right here at the Cows. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in that we missed totally, uh, if you have come, wow, there is a uh, raucous thunderstorm that has commenced since we went live with lightning and everything. Um, I guess if we should lose power or anything, there you go. There's a thunderstorm happening live as we speak. Uh, other folks, can, that, can I be heard? Uh, retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. And uh, tell Justice I say greetings also. <laughs> and greetings to uh, everyone that's on the line. Uh, I just have uh, three reports. Number one, uh, I've been noticing lately uh, a acceleration of what I call symbolic gestures uh, designed to uh, illustrate the disdain to racism, white supremacy. And uh, uh, there is a dual, uh, dual observation that I have for uh, these symbolic gestures. Uh, some of us are aware of the history of it. Uh, Mexico City, 1968, Mr. John Carlos, Mr. Thomas Smith. Uh, and But recently I've noticed uh, with the playing of the song that is called the National Anthem, uh, there are more people who are making symbolic gestures. Uh, I even saw an entire student section stand up and raise their fists and lower their heads, and most of the people in that section were white people. Uh, right then, right then, I made an, an observation because, you know, we, when I see white people doing something uh, that non-white people are doing, I become suspicious of it. And I suspect the flaw in this, in this is because it's, it could, it's something that is very simple. Uh, to white people, it gives them a very simple way of, of drawing uh Confuse, I call, I would say, confuse uh, attention from non-white people as though they are truly sincere about solving the problem of racism and white supremacy. Just an observation. I myself, uh, as a football coach, of course, I'm around that that particular uh, part in sporting events. Uh, I do not go out of my way. Primarily what I normally do is just don't even go come out of the locker room until after all of that is finished. Uh, that's what I was doing as a coach for about 30 years. But anyway, moving on. Uh, black athletes, uh, I've been recently hearing uh, the suggestion of black athletes to, uh, in mass, enroll back into historical black colleges. Uh, and... Uh, just off of the flat statement, uh, I would question on whether or not the person that's making the suggestion has really done uh, an hist a historical analysis of historical black colleges. Uh, first of all, the ones who were going to historical black colleges, let's say back in the 50s, 40s, and the 50s, uh, and even before, 
uh, they didn't have a choice to uh, to go to those institutions because the quote unquote uh, white populated institutions uh, were not recruiting uh, non-white people in, in athletics. And even as a student, they didn't want them on the campus at all. Uh, uh, that was backed by powerful white people uh, on the state level and the national level. Uh, moving along, uh, last but not least, uh, uh, for my observations of uh, Hurricane Dorian and its uh, landing on the islands in the Bahamas, I just made I'm just making a uh, contrast to on to the the uh, clips, the news clips uh, of the people in the Bahamas. Eighty five percent, according to statistics that I got. 85% of the inhabitants are considered to be non-white uh, black people. Uh, and 12% are reported to be white. Most of the clips, when you see the blacks in the clips, they're being carried away. You see white males carrying black people away in their arms. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm not just talking about children. I'm talking about adults. Uh, on scratchers, uh, and uh, white people are primarily are bravely uh, are walking away from their residence uh, uh, to safety with little help from resources, it appears, by these images. It's almost consistent uh, down here in South Florida when you, when, you, when you look at the news of the reports of it. Uh, and I saw a similar similar uh, reflections uh, with uh, the uh, Katrina with New Orleans, uh, where that was, uh, Mr. Fuller even talked about it, where, he, where the, this uh, black female was being uh, uh, lifted up out of her home by a helicopter by a white male who, and Mr. Fuller was describing it in an almost like sexual uh, uh, illustration on how he had this black female uh, legs wrapped around him as, as they were being uh, elevated back up into this helicopter. And certainly these uh, images that I have been seeing all during the week of, of are contrast as far as weakness versus strength. Uh, and uh, just some observations that I had this week. Thank you. Here's just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Context of white supremacy. Extra shout out for <laughs> Justice, even though she does not sound like that now at all. Long time ago. Long time ago. Much, yes, much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we have missed you totally, proceed. Can be heard. Yes, sir. Greetings, guys. Greetings to all the callers and the listeners. This is in Yame in Nebraska. Um, I've been, you know, I've been missing a lot of uh, live broadcasts of the cows, but I have been listening to the archives on a regular basis uh, over the past few months since I last called in. 
And I've, I really called in tonight because I have a question. Um, see if anyone can provide clarity. Can deception be used in a constructive manner? Is the, uh, the concept of constructive deception logical? If so, when and how could it be applied? And that's pretty much my question. And I'm in my line. Much obliged. Uh, Inyame, am I saying your name correctly, sir? Inyame? Yes, sir. Awesome. Uh, Caller in Nebraska. I've not been there. Uh, I think we have discussed this on the broadcast uh, before. Uh, there are different opinions. Uh, I know Mr. Fuller uh, in his code book, uh, his view is the problem that we have now. Uh, one of the main reasons that it's in place is because of deception. So we want truth. Universal man, universal woman should be about maximum truth truth you know at all times even when it's painful that's his view very valid very logical uh, i've had uh, we've had other people some of them listeners uh who take the position uh that there is a such a thing as constructive deception and they would say uh the workplace that that can be a time where it might be logical for me to not be honest uh if they want to ask me a lot of questions about my personal life my politics, my family, uh, maybe this is a time where I don't want to be maximum truth. Uh, maybe this is a time where I want to have uh, different responses, uh, deceptive responses for a work environment because I'm already in a dangerous environment where they're lying to me and concealing information. Uh, these folks do not have my best interests, so it might not behoove me uh, to be totally uh, transparent in this environment. We certainly have had folks, I see the logic of that perspective as well. So kind of have to process and come to your own conclusion. Uh, as we proceed, folks can respond, share their thoughts. This is a subject that we've discussed before on the program. Uh, others that we've missed totally, I can give out the number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate others might say if you're in a formal plantation situation similar to what we have now uh, and they say hey did uh cuffy try to escape today and you know he absconded about you know five hours ago that might be a time where you say hey constructive deception I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, he left five hours ago. He headed over the field yonder, went south. I, oh, I didn't see him. I was asleep. I didn't even uh, get up. I was trying to get my rest so tired. We worked so hard yesterday. Other folks that we missed totally, if you have commentary, proceed. Can, Can I be heard? Uh, let's see. Heard both of you. We'll get our female caller first. Uh, greetings, Draftamania. Uh, greetings, guests and callers. 
Um, I was calling to report on my housing situation. Um, I had an experience. Um, well, um, as I've been reporting, um, I've been going through um, a lot of, um, I guess, harassment and um, terrorism by um, these uh, suspects uh, that own the house and some of the residents. Well, since I've been living here, there's been an incidences with the um, internet service, um, and which seems to be familiar with victims. Um, it seems like, you know, we go through a lot of um, uh, interruptions with our service. Uh, even you and the callers I've heard um, have gone through this. But um, since I've been here for the last two years, um, I um, pay for uh, the Internet um, and cable is included in my, um, in my rent. And so, um, you know, I've been experiencing inter interruptions and things like that. So the other times when I've experienced the interruptions, I never have really had a problem with, um, you know, trying to call cable or letting them, you know, go ahead and uh, take care of the service because it's been affecting not just me, but everybody else in the house. But um, about maybe two weeks ago, um, the situation has been going on where the internet service was going out on me. Um, by the time I would get home from work, which is pretty uh, late, um, you know, usually when you get home, it's kind of late. You want to, like, relax. You want to get yourself together for the next day. And I usually, like, my routine is, like, I'll go, um, I'll, you know, turn on my computer and I'll look at a documentary or something. That's usually how I would end my evening by eating and things like that and, and watching a documentary. Well, every time I would try to get on the Internet, it would go out on me. And um, I would check the router to see if it, if the box, something was wrong with the router. But nothing was wrong with it. All the lights were on. So, you know, I came to the conclusion it was only happening to me. So I went, um, I did the next um, thing I was supposed to do, which was um, go to the owners and let them know about the situation. And, um, you know, I was telling them, I said, you know, um, um, I'm having this issue and it seems like it's only happening to me. And they, you know, of course, acted like um, I wasn't telling them the truth, like I was making this all up. And I had just came to the conclusion that, like, you know, if I'm paying for this service and it's only affecting me, um, the only way I was able to get the service is by going through the hotspot. So I would go through my hotspot on my phone, was able to get the service, no problem. Um, took it, took the situation to them to try to get it resolved. They basically tried to gaslight me, make it seem like I was just a, uh, what do you call a, a nuisance, uh, just a nuisance. And I was just, you know, uh, um, you know, making a fuss about nothing. Now, mind you, I pay my rent on time and before time. Um, I pay my rent sometimes two weeks ahead of time. And I'm getting all this flack and all this pushback from these people. Literally, guys, I'm having to argue with these people 
about a service that I am paying for and they're giving me pushback and problems. So I told them what the solution would be is that I can go ahead and get a hot spot or I'll go ahead and provide the service, service for myself. Um, they, you know, uh, they was trying to resolve it by getting, um, uh, you know, the cable service to come and fix the service. Um, I told them that if I keep on having problems, I was just going to go ahead and um, uh, pay for the service myself and take it and deduct it out of my rent. Had an argument with the um, owner, not really an argument. We had words because I basically, um, I consider it as um, having some black self-respect because I finally stood up and had some, you know, had some boundaries and like told them, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deduct it out of my rent. They tried to tell me that I couldn't deduct it out of my rent. That's not the way they do it. Uh, we, um, uh, we cut checks or whatever. And I, what I did, I did some research. I found out that through um, the law of my state that I'm able to do so. So um, I told them that, and this lady, like, she basically, um, she just gaslighted me. She got, she um, told me that just because I was telling her about the problem and how I was going to resolve it, she told me that I was um, going to make, I'm making her mad. And that um, she no longer wanted to hear my complaints about what was going on with the service. She got sarcastic with me and she said, um, well, um, I'm sorry. Well, what do you want me to do? Come cry on your, sir, uh, on your shoulder. She was, it was just totally, I mean, and these are like suspects. It was just totally unprofessional. Um, so cable came out and, um, I was able, they told me that I needed to get some, um, USB, um, uh, USB, uh, ports to plug, uh, plug into my computer to, um, because the signal is not coming into my room. And, um, you always say something about like, watch out for words. So when they sent the email out, they tried to word the email like, um, the, the reason why I was having a problem is because my computer is not compatible, which was not the issue at all. The cable guy said the reason why I'm not having um, getting service is because the um, the router is not reaching signal, is not going through the wall to reach me, and I'm not able to get the service. So I was able to um, um, purchased those um, USB ports and I deducted it out of my rent. But it was just totally just the harassment. I have gone through the um, the uh, terrorism from the tenant that they they were also um, doing unjust networking with him. So, so I, it's all coming out. Um, then I'm going through the noise um, harassment with the constant like, shaking and the, um, banging in my room. And then right after that, the constant every night for the last two weeks, my internet service going out. And then them getting mad at me because I tell them that there's something wrong with their service. And like I said, not them just not, I had to tell her, like, you know, you're not professional. I said, you know, um, and, and I really seconds. don't appreciate the way. Okay, and I didn't appreciate the way that she treated me. But um, hopefully it's all resolved. But um, I did speak up for myself, and I got um, I was able to, um, you know, uh, be proactive on my own part. And that's all I have. 
Much obliged, Draftomania. Uh, I think that might have been Imhan DC who spoke up simultaneously. Uh, thank you for your patience, sir. Did you have commentary? Yes, sir. Can I be hurt? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I also use the term uh, treason. Maybe I can choose a better term. But I do use that term. I do think that there's still the remnants of a kingdom left or an empire left or whatever you want to call the organization that once was. So that's why I say it. Um, I do think that eventually we will become another, we will become an entity again uh, to where it's basically all the black people of the world in its own entity, in its own organization. Um, and we will be the world power. There won't be a world power after white people other than black people. It won't be China next or some Arab. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was dealing with uh, Ghana. There was going to be over 200, I think it was going to be black Americans. I think that, well, that's what they said anyway. So 200 black Americans, over 200 black Americans were supposed to get their citizenship or they were told they would get their citizenship. Um, and so while I was there, I was told, oh, it's going to happen at this event. And then I was told, no, it's going to happen at this event. Uh, so the two events, uh, the uh, year of return celebration was one event where the president showed up, and but there was no announcement. Like I said before, there was no benefits announced uh, that would come to black Americans. Um, and then, so I was told, well, perhaps it's going to be at PanFest. Um, but then it didn't happen then. And then I heard on, uh, you know, I've been asking, I've been asking, you know, the people in, in Ghana since I've been back, has it happened? Has it happened? And, um, and then I heard on YouTube, um, I think it was Sinetta Studios, one of the guys speaking said that, oh, they got their citizenship that's over the... 200 plus black Americans, supposed um, black Americans got their citizenship. And then so I called to Ghana um, and they're just still telling me, no, that didn't happen. Um, they, they still haven't gotten their citizenship. So I don't know where that information uh, came from that the individual spoke on. Um, but, but anyway, my, my reason for even mentioning this is uh, there's people who didn't have they've been there for over 20 over 30 years or around around about that time and still haven't gotten their citizenship there's a lot of people who qualified for citizenship and didn't get their citizenship they um i mean it, it's been it was, it's been a real uh, serious issue where people won't even talk about it um, once you speak to them you know because i speak to uh, some of the black americans there and so some of them said, oh, you know, I'm not going to talk about that. You know, it hurts too bad. Um, but <clears throat> that entity will come again where we have an alliance 
And for that alliance to happen, black Americans are going to have to be treated right by other entities. Black Americans are our own entity, I say. And so all other African entities have to treat us right, I'm saying. Um, solve our problems. Give us citizenship. Um, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, Imhan DC. Uh, even in the report that we heard today uh, on the passing of uh, Robert Mugabe, uh, seems to be a lot of evidence that non-white people on the continent uh, mistreat other non-white people who were born there. So not much of a surprise if there's mistreatment uh, of non-white people who were born someplace other than the continent. That's the system of racism, too. Uh, I did want to make sure before we moved on, uh, Draftomania, sorry you are dealing with the uh, internet uh, disruptions uh, at your residence. Uh, lots of ways so that non-white people just have a lot of problems. Uh, and, and then to have these difficulties which seem suspicious, and then you report them and you are a nuisance. Uh, but bravo for looking into the local laws to uh, see that you do have the legal right uh, to withhold those funds uh, to compensate for them not adequately uh, honoring the contract and making sure that your residence uh, has all of the resources uh, that you should. Uh, so bravo, uh, that's a part of counter-racism as well, being more informed about rules and regulations, especially those that are beneficial to you. Uh, let's see, other folks that dialed in that we missed totally. If you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Thomas in New York. Greetings, uh, greetings to all the callers. Um, yeah, it was um, definitely good that you stood up for yourself. Oh, Gus, when you go to the beaches in Washington State, um, are they cold? Is the water cold or is the water warm? Generally, uh, I mean, anybody, you can look on a map and see how close uh, Seattle is to Alaska. So um, mm -hmm. generally, the water is frigid. Um, having lived in California and gone to the beach uh, in Los Angeles and San Francisco, the water is pretty chilly until you get down to about like San Diego. Um, even in San Francisco, the water is still cold. So up here, it's frigid. However... This Monday, it was, we'll say about 80 degrees, somewhere in there, 80 degrees or so uh, this Monday. Uh, I did put my feet in the water, which is substantially more than I normally do uh, here in Washington State because the water is so cold and is often toxic. But out at Black Lake, it was fresh clear, non-toxic water, and it really was not that cold. Uh, I was, if I had had, if I had known that the water was going to be that nice, I would have brought bathing trunks and I would have gotten in. Uh, but generally, it's pretty frigid. You do still see a lot of people, a lot of white people in the water, though, but it's generally pretty cold. Uh, cold I guess that's relative. It's generally well below 70 degrees. I can put a temperature on it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I just was, I was curious. I thought it would be cold. 
Um, I had a friend who went to Brazil, and um, you know, um, he was he went to the beach, just the Copacabana or whatever. So I asked him, you know, how come every time I see a postcard or picture of the beach in Brazil, everybody's on the sand, nobody's in the water. He was like, man, that water's so cold. I was like, oh, okay, it makes sense. So, yeah, I could see that. Um, Man, the, the story you played about heat in the Black area, I saw that um, article this week. And... um. They said in the article that they did the test and found that 97% of um, the places they tested um, where the black people lived, there was a substantial difference in temperature. Um, And they listed New York. And the areas that they listed in New York, um, I would say neither part has trees. So how come it's such a big difference, you know? And uh, to me, uh, in my opinion, on that story is, um, you know, being that we're melanated, we attract heat um, that white people don't. Um, It it doesn't matter uh, where we are, we'll always have a higher temperature because we're attracting the sun um, at a higher rate than they are. Um, You know, that's just my theory on it um, because even um, when you look at, um, the island of Hispanolia, um, and I, you know, went there, you know, on Weather Channel, and it's the same temperature on both sides of the island. Um, and we know that they took all the Hades trees, so it's both highly melanated people on both sides. So I think that um, they're using that as an excuse um, to not um, agree with melanin theory. Um, the Geiger story. Um, the way they're positioning the story is that she accidentally parked on the wrong floor. She accidentally went to the wrong apartment. So they're already um, taking away um, intent and maybe motive. You know, it's an accident, making a mistake, not murder. Um, So I I pretty much see how the media is positioning the story. where she's pretty much, they're pretty much saying that, if the state is saying that she's guilty of murdering this man um, in whatever degree, and the media is saying that she, it was an accident already, um, they're already positioning her to be exonerated. Um, and I'll be my line. Thank you, Gus. Definitely watch for the weeping white woman in that one. Uh, be interesting to see the composition of the jury. I'm sure that'll be sometime this week. Uh, Other folks that we missed totally, uh, we did have a question about constructive use of deception, if anybody wanted to respond to that as well. Uh, Others we missed totally. Did we nab everybody? Assume we got everybody. Grant, I'll double check, give out the number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. 
uh, invest. We are listener-supported, counter-racist radio. Uh, you can hit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested. Uh, much obliged for 10 years of support. Hope we have been and continue to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, you can also, we are on Cash App. Uh, you can hit the address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Again, much obliged for the support. We're also on Amazon.com, wish list under Gusty Renegade. Huge thanks to everyone who has nabbed items for the past decade. Uh, hope you have received constructive information about what white supremacy racism is, how it works, things we can do to go about solving this problem. Let's see. Uh, make sure there was... I generally am not excited or... Oh, that was it. That was it. Uh, they have released... Not that I'm looking to have major dialogue. I'm certainly not going to view it. But they've released a spinoff series from the Abomination Blackish that's called Mixed-ish Cowbell. And it's supposed to uh, revolve around a white man who's with a black female and their uh, quote-unquote biracial uh, children. And it had a montage to promote this that featured... Uh, President Obama, uh, President Obama, and uh, I think uh, Duchess Merkel, a uh, whole you know array uh, of uh, victims of racism used to promote confusion. Uh, but this is going to be a whole television uh, series. Wow, confusion is lethal, and that would be another great illustration. Reading is more important than watching television uh, because it'll just be lots of racism programming like that uh, other folks uh, have comments they wanted to share if you had additional comments uh, or folks wanted to respond to the question that was posed uh, you feel free as well um, yes sir can I be heard go ahead sir can I be heard yes sir oh okay uh, yes, uh, I, I kind of like wanted to uh, go back to uh, the report that you made on uh, quarterbacks and the idea of uh, uh, the possibility of uh, white people relinquishing the position. Uh, it's possible, uh, but at the same time, I think uh, to white people in the global system of racism and white supremacy, they also have to continue to promote uh, masculine aggression uh, to keep up their terror over non-white people. And it's, it's sought out in the means of sports. Uh, white males, I think, dominate this Sport. It's called a sport. It may not be one that's called USC, where white males are brain damaging each other, 
at an alarming rate. It is a very popular sport. Matter of fact, I think it is, it has surpassed uh, prize fighting uh, in the advent. Uh, and the whole idea of the position of quarterback uh, uh, is protected uh, a lot more than it ever has been uh, as far as uh, from the standpoint of head injury also. And uh, also what it entails as far as leadership from a natural standpoint, uh, that uh, they are still uh, grooming white males to be quarterbacks on the top level. Uh, The difference uh, of that position now is based on what is on defenses. The athletes are bigger, faster, stronger, which is code for black males. And in turn, they had to uh, place someone in that position called quarterback that's a little bit more athletic than what it was what it used to be back, let's say, in the 60s or the 70s. And they even have a, 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 a code for it. Uh, I think it's called athletic quarterback, something like that, something of similar of nature uh, 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 that they even have a, a distinction for it. And uh, so uh, that's something that uh, you may want to think about as far as uh, I know it's not a big interest of yours, but but uh, it's something to uh, think about as far as uh, why it may not be exclusively black males at that position. And that's, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thomas in New York. Maybe he's waiting a, a tad to get back with oh, us. Oh, yeah, I'm muted. It took me a second to unlock my phone. Kind of locked on me. I apologize. Um, man, um, Man, I was going to say something to the last caller, but um, the deception, um, the question. Um, I look at there's a book called The 48 Laws of Power. And uh, law number 44 is to disarm and infuriate with the mirror effect. The mirror reflects reality but it's also a perfect tool for deception. When you're, when you marry your enemies doing exactly as they do, they can't figure out your strategy. The mirror effects mocks and humiliates them, making them overreact. Um, so I think that um, um, deception, you know, in, in the sense of any deception we can do to white people, it would be mirroring the deception they're already committing on us. So. I, I totally agree with the uh, um, use of deception uh, as a strategy, um, a counter-racist strategy. Um, to um, one of the things that uh, white people haven't had to do in a long time is overreact to what black people have done. You know, so uh, it kind of lets you know that they have control uh, when they have to overreact when you know that you. Um, got to them. And I think that um, by mirroring them, it will, you know, create for them to overreact. And um, I hate to use the metaphor, but maybe show their hand um, at times, um, expose themselves rather, 
and show your hand. Um, and I forgot the other thing I was going to say. If it comes back to me, I'll, I'll um, remember it. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, other folks, uh, if you had additional comments, uh, questions, wanted to respond to the question that was posed, or if you had uh, your own thoughts, uh, we have about 20 minutes uh, left in the broadcast. Do not wait until the last few moments if you think you would like to contribute. Uh, other folks, feel free. I remember now, you mentioned, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. I apologize. Uh, oh, you can go ahead. Uh, peace and hot DC. Um, yeah, so I was going to just say, um, you said mixed dish. Um, the, and I mentioned this person because she said that when they asked her what her race was, she said mixed. Um, she can't identify with black nor white. Uh, but it's no, no day you could be the um, news and not come up on a story in Britain about um, Meghan Merkel and um, a mixed, you know, she's a mixed person as she calls herself. I mean, the slander and racism they use on her in the tabloids, I guess they call it in London, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's almost like it's, it's laughable. Uh, it's like, man, I mean, they, they're pulling out all the stops. It, it's, it's a uh, it's a total show, um, and I'll mute my line. Thank you. Pulling out all the stops, metaphor. Uh, M. Han DC, proceed. Yes, sir. Yeah, greetings, Tom. Greetings, Thomas. Been a minute, uh, or that might be a metaphor. Um, I was going to say, as far as. What's going on with Black Americans and all other African uh, countries? So I think Google might say that there's about 3,000 to 10,000 Black Americans in Ghana. Um, but Google says, I remember, or I remember typing it in, and um, it was about 92,000. Um, Ghanaians that are in America, um, but then that's then you have to consider there's I think 54 African countries, and then there's all the other countries in the world too. But this is the country of the Black Americans. I mean, this is like this is our land, and I know the whole possessive thing, but I mean, this is the land that we're standing on. This is the land we've been on, you know, for however long. I say for a long, very long time. And so this is our land, and everybody else is here. And uh, immigrants get a lot of benefits on our land. They get um, money towards down payments because I'm I'm in real estate. I'm I'm hearing about these programs when I'm, I'm talking to the mortgage brokers. They have you know a whole bunch of programs just especially for immigrants. They're, they get help with you know everything everything you need to live and um but my my point is i know it's the white people that are giving these things but it's on our land and we don't get benefits when we go to these african countries if we are able to get the benefits able to get citizenship 
and all the rights that come with citizenship, we'll be able to more quickly solve this problem of white supremacy. That's what I say. Uh, thank you. Much obliged, M. Hun DC. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in 48 Laws of Power was suggested for the book club a few times, uh, actually. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, comments, suggestions, questions, proceed. Perhaps we nabbed everyone. I would uh, just back to draft the mania situation because that's so important when you're being uh, terrorized in the place where you reside uh, with her situation. Uh, I would perhaps get in the habit of recording that Mr. Fuller, I know this is not workplace racism, but it's related. Uh, once people get in that, oh, you're a nuisance. And I'm just tired of hearing, you know, about all this. You just want to call and, and complain and whine about it. Once they get to that, like, oh, we need to have a recording and or these conversations are now going to be in writing uh, because people frequently are much more reluctant uh, to put down in writing that sort of uh, trifling verbiage. So it would be a lot of emails and or uh, recording uh, and even making that known uh, because of the unprofessional way that she spoke with you. Um, yeah, I might even have that be announced uh, just because of, of the, the conduct uh, and, and the way that she spoke to you. That might be something to something to consider. Uh, let's see. Uh, our caller at seven, six, five, six. Did you have commentary, ma'am? You should be with us also. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Um, lots of interesting clips. I agree with what you said about um, former President Mugabe. I hadn't heard anything nice about him. I did hear about the, well, actually, I read about the literacy rate in Zimbabwe being very high. But other than that, outside of, well, here in America, it's not like I traveled all over the world. I didn't hear a lot of nice things about him, so I didn't understand what the people in the club were talking about when they said that. But you know, they may have, they may be more aware of things than I was. Um, in terms of the deception, I think, um, well, we practice deception inadvertently because we live in a system. So I think. I agree with Mr. Fuller. The goal is to be truthful, but I think a lot of times we have to learn how to be very, again, be very careful with our words. Um, I know, for example, one time somebody asked me, did I miss them? I told them it wasn't the same without them, which was true. I did not miss that person, but I said what I said. It was the truth, and this was to, again, make the person feel good. So that's why I said it to them in that way. They went away happy. I went away happy, you know, no fights or destructive arguments. 
went into. So I think it's important to be knowledgeable of words and how to use them in such a way to get the point across without um, explaining everything. Um, and also, if you have to be truthful, well, I mean, you should be truthful, but I'll try to use, I guess, like the lawyer approach, like I'm in court, because we feel like, sometimes I feel I'm on trial. Um, and I just say the minimum that I need to say to get the point across, how are you, fine. You know, some person, again, asked me, was it hot enough for me? I hate that question. I just think it's stupid. So I just said no, and they walked away. This was a white person. Is it hot enough for you? No. Just leave me alone. Um, so, again, having a knowledge of words and knowing how to use them. And, again, I want to say, again, I think I said this before, to look in your community for events because I'm trying to go to this event on Wednesday. I believe it's free. And it says the person speaking was the judge who was on trial for the Dylan Roof case. So hopefully I'll remember to go because I have a question about that. I think it's very interesting. And I'll try to keep the questions if I get the chance to ask one positive because the person may say something interesting and I can hopefully recommend them to the show because it's a white person, because the judge was white. So wish me, you know, Godspeed, luck, whatever prayers that I'm able to remember to do all of that on Wednesday. And um, I was I started exercising, and, you know, extra people, white people, love to tell you how to feel during the exercise. So I finished the exercise. It is somewhat demanding. I'm like, oh, you're going to be sore tomorrow. I'm like, no. Like, you know, I'm very kind of set of people trying to say things to me about that because it's discouraging. But I know how I feel after I've exercised, and I know what to do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes, ma'am. Good luck for uh, Wednesday. I hope you have a constructive outing and are able to ask uh, some poignant questions. or Maybe you only have to ask one uh, to reveal truth. Uh, hang on one second, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, the caller at 3098, did we miss you totally? Did you have uh, commentary to share? Yes, I do. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Good evening, everybody. I hope everybody's having a constructive evening. I want to um, share briefly about, I think the question was about constructive deception. I think it can be useful in certain situations, especially in the workplace. I kind of relate it to... Um, the spook who sat by the door because we are um, acting as um, people who are gathering information and learning more about how whites, whites conduct themselves in certain situations. So I think that can be useful, uh, especially in the workplace. Um, and then briefly, I want to ask a question, if I may, is unrelated to anything. Um, some, I just, uh, Mr. Fox, he, he recently reposted a broadcast with... Um, with Alan G. Johnson, and part of that broadcast was a segment from the, an Alan Iverson, Alan Iverson doc, documentary. I was wondering if you would be able to remember the title of that documentary, because I was able, unable to find it, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Mm, well, at this point, there are quite a few documentaries, but I think the only one that I would have played uh, in that context uh, is probably the 
uh, ESPN uh, documentary, No Crossover. Um, it was probably the segment um, where he was, they're talking about the trial. This was back when he was in high school uh, in Virginia. Virginia. Uh, they were talking about the trial, uh, and this is in the 90s, and he was talking about the amount of power that the white judge had, uh, speaking of judges, uh, that the amount of power that the white judge had over their lives. It was he and I think three or four uh, black male co-defendants uh, in the case. But I think uh, that I, I, there are many documentaries about Allen Iverson. That is the only one that I can recall that, oh, yeah, I was going to play a segment of that on the cows uh, about racism, white supremacy. I think that's the ESPN. Uh, the title is No Crossover. Uh, it should be available online or iTunes, Netflix, or, you know, uh, let's see. Uh, did we miss anyone? I did. I remember, uh, Mr. Uh, retired firefighter. Is there anybody that we, uh, missed totally who has a hand up last few minutes before we, uh, call it a broadcast, make sure we didn't miss anybody totally. Right. Retired firefighter? Yes, sir. Uh, I would just want to add that uh, uh, deception doesn't necessarily have to be a lie. Uh, uh, magicians use deception all of the time uh, with sleight of hand uh, or uh, a sleight of word uh, and uh, and then a lot of a lot of, uh, of of the issue has to deal with context also. Uh, to be deceiving can also save your life at some particular point in time. Mr. Fuller even gave an example of that. If someone is uh, uh, in, in, in the course of a robbery and uh, you, make, you make the statement, well, I don't carry any cash, and you got you know, $100 in your shoe or something. You know that sort of thing. Uh, it, it could save your life. I just put it that way. So it, it is. It is uh, some uh, point into uh, uh, what? What was that term again? Constructive deception. Right. Yeah. It, it is. It, it is. It is some point into the word constructive deception, and uh, that's that's my comment on that. Thank you. Uh, other. Thoughts, final comments, or suggestions before we wrap up the broadcast? Grant, if folks have uh, suggestions, ideas for the retreat, drop us an email untiljustice at gmail.com, recipes, other group activities. Let us know. It's far enough in advance that we can plan accordingly. Uh, but the dates again, December 28th to January 1, will be down in Florida. Yoga, plant-based meals, counter-racist workshops, and food workshops uh, for folks who might not be comfortable, have never cooked with a beet before. Workshops. So you can actually show and hands-on experience. Uh, we'll all get some kitchen time. Uh, to get more comfortable with what to do with fruits and vegetables to make them delicious without having to be full of fat and nonsense 
really enjoy eating in a nutritious, healthy manner that tastes good. I think everybody enjoys a meal better when it tastes good, even vegetables. Uh, drop an email, questions, guest suggestions. The iTunes feed, I have been working feverishly. Uh, I mentioned last week that it has been uh, updating. Seems the problem has been corrected. Uh, that, in my view, talk about racist interference, uh, the draftomania referred to uh, same thing for the duration of our cows broadcast history uh, but it at least seems for the time being uh, that it is allowing me to uh, manage the account I uh, uploaded content I think I got everything from August through almost all of May uh, uploaded uh, to iTunes I think it's in its entirety all of the the streams work uh, and I'm working on finishing out the rest of uh, 2019 uh, this week uh, and then you know I can just if whites allow I'll be able to go through and, and get everything caught back up so the iTunes feed will be uh, current and working but all of the folks who uh, I guess appreciated uh, found it easier to access the content via iTunes uh, or the other platforms uh, that aggregated content from iTunes should be functioning again so you can check those platforms uh, should be up and working. Let me know, but I've tried it repeatedly and seems like it's working, at least for the time being. Wonders never cease. Uh, we'll be here. Uh, check Black Talk Radio Facebook page uh, middle of the week, hopefully, for constructive content. Hoping to survive the thunderstorm this evening. Wow, I do not even... We don't even really have uh, thunderstorms very frequently here. It's kind of... Uh, bizarre to even be seeing such a thing here but uh everyone is satisfied yes grand much obliged uh for folks participation uh so-called school is supposed to be back in session uh read the policy and procedure uh that can be uh, a family activity uh we will sit and read the school policy and procedure together so that we all know the rules and regulations, uh, parent and child. I think that'll be helpful uh, moving forward. That's helpful, really, regardless of the school year. You can make that an annual event uh, so that everybody knows, you know, what the expectations are if you are going to the public school. But definitely uh, have some sort of code in place. Uh, if it's that time of year, uh, be having conversations uh, with your child, uh, recognizing racism, white supremacy, and potential problems as a result of that with other white students, white teachers, white faculty members, what you want them to do. Uh, if certain things happen, how you want them to respond, it might be what you want them to say or contacting you, whatever it is. Make sure that you've already had those discussions and continue uh, to have those discussions with your child. Uh, it is that time of year, so be prepared if you are sending your child off. Uh, the metaphor uh, Minister Farrakhan uses is the killing fields. Sobriety would be best. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, the report. Non-white male getting a DUI and not even remembering the event. Our brain computers are valuable. That is what is going to solve the problem for us. Take care of them, guard them, uh, value them. Uh, let's try to do as much as we can to nourish uh, and replenish our minds, bodies, 
everything so that we can quickly solve this problem. Say it, verbalize solving this problem. Uh, as Imhan DC says, uh, in addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's the little things that we can do uh, to try to keep ourselves as safe as possible. That includes not being on a cell phone if we are driving a vehicle. Uh, let's as much as we can possibly do to minimize contact with the Daniel Pantaleos, that would be grand. Creator, help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. Help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.